said, F you, we're not paying, go ahead and sue us, you're welcome to sue us, we're not afraid, you can't do anything, and that's it. Boom. End of discussion. Amok and Scorcher. They're not games you'd expect to find in a top 10 listicle. Though what went on behind the scenes, and how the development team rose to the rings of Saturn, is a story for the ages. The E3 stars showed extreme 3D prowess on the troubled console, creating a game called Into the Shadows, never to see the light of store shelves. You're about to listen to a story about friendship founded on hacking, and exceptional digital artistry. From that moment on, you know, we were like, you know, what are we gonna do? A team built from late-stage Sega Genesis success, while impressing Sega of Japan with their 32X 3D engines, they would move on to the Saturn, strictly on Team Sega, eventually making a deal with GT Interactive in an effort to grow. It's a classic example of the Sega Saturn's strange and difficult North American journey, though the villain is not who you'd expect it to be. This is a tale of crushing corporate betrayal, the story of Scavenger. Tonight's heroes are Patrick Trainer and Dave Lee, with special guest Christian Larson, a former Scavenger developer. So first off, Christian, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for your time. I know you are a professional, you're busy, you're doing a lot of stuff, and I just appreciate you taking the time to talk to a couple of like game history geeks. You know, oh, about... no, it's awesome. I'm, yeah. I'm very, thank you for inviting me, and it's, it's just, uh, yes. I'm glad to be here. So, yeah. I'm, in, I'm incredibly thrilled to talk to you. I've been waiting to talk to you for a long time, and I can't tell you like how much I want this story to come to light and just be, you know, part of the, you know, the general, you know, common knowledge in, in terms of game history preservation, you know, so because I think right. what you guys did was really special. And you got caught up in circumstances that, you know. Yeah, I can tell you sort of the, you know, the backstory because I think some of the things are not really known uh, that really what really happened behind the scenes. So Absolutely. So yeah. Absolutely. How about we just start out with you kind of introducing yourself. So I reached out to Christian uh, because I was searching information on scavenger games. And uh, actually, you know, I knew, I had heard the name Daniel Small a lot in association with Scavenger, uh, who made games on the Sega Saturn, uh, among other uh, systems, PC and other consoles. I couldn't find any contact information for Daniel, really. But then I actually realized while I was doing my research that you know, there was this whole other CEO, a joint CEO, Christian Lorson. You, you basically co-founded the company with him. And I reached out to you 
And you were just like immediately, I was surprised at how quick you got back to me. And so I was definitely thrilled to, you know, to make contact and, uh, and to be able to get some more information on this, because I'll tell you, uh, there's, there really isn't a whole lot of information out there. There's a lot of like surface stuff, but you know, there's, there's whole games that are unknown. You know, there's, there's a, there's a lot of information that's yeah. not, uh, not really available to the public. So, uh, yeah, I think that because, you know, in the nineties things were as things are now, I mean, it would be totally different now with the internet and stuff like that. This was the very beginning of the internet when we were starting. So, right. Well, so, okay. So you are, let's see, you're, you're, are you Danish? So yeah, yeah, I'm Danish. Uh, I was born in Denmark, grew up there uh, until I was 20. And then I, I left for America. A fun so, fact, yeah. I, I'm a quarter Danish. <laughs> oh, really? Okay, that's cool. I, I, I'm Danish on my grandmother's side. Yeah. So. Uh, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, there we go. So there we we're go. somehow related. <laughs> somehow. Somehow. And. So you are a director, filmmaker, screenwriter, you're a game developing veteran. You you used to work with Disney, DreamWorks, Sony Pictures, Sega, Activision, EA, Konami, and Virgin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and wow, I might have missed lot. some stuff in there, but you yeah, you, your resume goes on and on. And it also seems like uh the role that you had to play in Scavenger was was like the scouting role and kind of like the brand image and everything like that. Like you really had a, a big hand in like the look and the feel of the company and the direction of the company, if I'm not mistaken. You're an artist, right? Yeah, so I'm an artist. So I would say that I was sort of the creative side of Scavenger. Right. Uh, you know, and so basically Daniel and I were like very close friends. So he was, you know... He was sort of the visionary. He was the, the business guy. He was not only a programmer, but he was really, you know, he, he understood so many things. And I learned a lot from Daniel. Um, so, but yeah, it, it all started at Virgin. And uh, so we were like the yin and yang kind of thing. Uh, you know, so, and, and also another thing with Daniel was that uh, he loved art. He loved graphics. He loved, he had a fascination with games and all these things that really helped uh, just kind of like make our yin and yang like glue together. You know, there was in that way, there was just zero friction. It was just like he was supporting me. And then, and that actually, that's what we did with the teams as well. It was trying to enable, uh, you know, guys to make games. So that was some of the things behind Scavenger was to do that. And Daniel was the main guy in trying to do that at, as a business to try to do that because that's the thing. It's like uh, video games is a business and um, it's, it's, it's a tough business and uh, programmers and artists alike, you know, you're, you're focusing on something you want to make, but you don't really know the business side. So, so scavenger was sort of like the, the child of Daniel and Daniel and I were, you know, getting lunch together at Virgin and stuff like that. So it sort of started at, at Virgin and, you know, So let's just start with how you got into the games industry to begin with. How did that happen? So, so yeah, so uh, let me start. I think, so like, I don't know if you can see the, the Paradox demo thing, because I think that's kind of important before actually how I started getting mm-hmm. the skills. 
to get into the game industry. Um, so basically in the 80s uh, in Europe, also America, but there was specifically in Europe, there was something called a demo scene. And um, the way it started was kind of interesting because, you know, in the 80s when games were being developed for home computers and stuff like that, uh, you would have these programmers and you had different programmers. You would have programmers that wanted to make a game, but you also had programmers that wanted to kind of hack things. Uh, and so what started was basically that these games would be copied and hacked. Um, mm. And and it was like an underground scene, right? So, um, and what happened was basically that these programmers uh, wanted to sort of competition. Who could crack it fast, right? Who could get <laughs> the game up first? And uh, so when you were doing that, you wanted to have a name. So everyone had a nickname that they would go by, right? So not their real name, because some, some of the stuff, anyone that was hacking it, sometimes that wasn't quite legal and stuff like that. Yeah. So, but they would put, want to put their name on, right? And then by, by the fact that other programmers didn't necessarily want to be like, oh, hacking is kind of like a little dry for me. I want to play with a computer. I want to, I want to do something visual, right? Because you have the programmers that are very visual. They're not artists in the, in the way of drawing. But they're like super smart in, in making something visual, uh, moving around, stuff like that. So organically in, in Europe, basically, these people started together, also America, they started getting together and getting to know each other. And so they would do these intros. So before you started the game, there would be an intro saying it was, it was cracked by so and so and so, like the paradox that we saw. Right. And mm-hmm. so. So that's how these guys, and we were all kids, you know, we were like, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old kids, uh, basically uh, playing with the computers. Um, and so um, what happened was I was an artist. I got my laptop, then I got my Spectrum, um, CX Spectrum computer. Um, and there was, you know, I was not really doing too much art. I was just playing as a kid. Uh, but then I got my Amiga and I started kind of, you know, getting better and better at, at drawing and stuff like that on the computer. And that's when I started connecting with people in the demo scene. So I became part of the, uh, the trilogy, trying to remember, trilogy and paradox. Um, and so we would get together. And we would start making demos and intros and I would do the logos and stuff like that. Uh, and so it was a, it was like a perfect way of, of sort of like getting your skills for making games. It's pretty ironic if you think about it, like uh, you got uh, the, the scene sort of brought up from piracy and cracking these games and, you know, that ironically led you to building games. So it yeah, it's like a cycle. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It's kind of ironic. Right. Yeah. Did your perspective on like piracy and hacking and the and when you were making the games did that change at all or was that well, were you like you know what it's it is what it is sort of thing? I think let me try to think. I mean, as a kid, you don't think too many, you don't think too deep about it. But we kind of knew that it was wrong, right? Uh, but it was like back in the days, you would also you know you would have your tape and you record music on your thing and and copy it that way, right? So yeah. In some way, I think that the game is still sold, right? Because, you know, 
So, I'm, you know, I mean, we didn't have the problem with viruses at that time. So, um, but yeah, we would copy things and stuff like that. And we knew that it wasn't the right thing to do. And Don't copy like that. that floppy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did I hear you right? Did I hear you saying that you're going to make a copy of a game without paying? Come on, guys. I thought you knew better. Don't copy that floppy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, honestly, though, companies would write better copy protection and then you guys would crack that copy protection. And it was literally just showing off, you know, <laughs> like, see it was, who could, it was totally who could, out, who could outdo the others. And you must have been a wizard on a, a Motorola 68K, right? Because the, the, didn't the Amiga and the Genesis or the Mega Drive share that in common? Like, that was a really popular chip. Yes, it was the same processor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's why sort of like the transition from Amiga to the Sega Genesis was perfect for our teams. And that's, that's the thing that I want to say is that because of this, the very best programmers in the demo scene, they sort of gravitated. So you would have the best artists, the best programmers, and they sort of would like come together, right? Uh, and that's why it's like, uh, it was all about playing. It was, it was like, you know, playing and, and, and trying to push the machines. The programmers would do everything to push. It was all about frame rate. You know, it had to be 50 frames per second. If it was not 50, it sucked. You know, it was like, you know, <laughs> that's lame. You know, so this, it was a lot of competition. It was really about competition uh, and being the best. And that, that pushed, you know, these kids. You know, we were kids, right? That pushed us to do better and better. I wanted to be the best artist and we all wanted to do good stuff, right? Um, and so the demo scene and the copying and all that enabled that. Um, like I remember like uh, one point we went to Holland and uh, so the, uh, just to describe, because some of you guys might, might not know the demo scene, how it was back then, uh, but it would basically be like a school or a, a sports hall full of computers. Like everyone would come bring the computers in the cars and you would have like 400 people, 500 people, 800 people in one place with the computers and just playing games, uh, playing games, uh, hacking, you know, or making demos. And so it was a combination, all types of people that just love the computers. Uh, did, you ever, and, uh, did you guys ever do like DreamHack or anything like that? Uh, DreamHack, that's something recent, right? I, 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 well, like, I know there was a few events in Europe uh, throughout the years that they had like like those giant LAN, LAN events, but maybe it might have just been like the 90s upwards. I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it was the 90s. They grew bigger and bigger and bigger. They started small, uh, you know, so it was in a school and stuff like that. I, I think they got really big by even... They got sponsored by companies eventually and stuff like that. So they, they got huge. I know that I haven't been to a demo party since the 90s. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit out of touch in that way. But I, I think they're really big right now still. You know, there's still yeah. a demo scene. Yeah, um, I, I definitely want to definitely one of these days go there and do some of that stuff. Because I, I used to love landing back in the day. But, like, you know, with COVID and just the way the Internet is. Yeah, it was. It was see, this is the thing. There was no Internet, right? So we got together. And it was fun. It was like, you know, it was just, uh, you know, you basically spend a couple of days, two days, three days, or sometimes one day uh, together. And you would sleep in the hallways. You would bring your, I mean, it was like, I remember like one of the demo parties, uh, you know, we were like trying, because the thing is you sort of, you, you work on the demo for like a month or a couple of weeks, depending on what it is. 
and then you would come to the demo party and you would finish it and you would have a certain time. So, but people were like literally like not sleeping at all, right? So I remember like I was walking down the hallway. I hadn't slept in like two days or something like that. And it was just like getting all the art in and stuff like that. And I was walking down this hallway and I started feeling the hallway instead of like started moving the other direction, you know? Oh, geez. Yeah. But, but it was like you're a kid, you know, you're just like, yeah, it's okay, whatever, right? Um, exactly, exactly. And that's a little bit with the game industry, not in a good way with the crunching. Because that, that's the problem. yeah no that's that's definitely something that people are suffering through now but I mean it's different back in the day when you're you're you, you know you're, you're just a silly kid staying up all night running on uh I, I don't know what your what was your drink of choice back in the day like energy or or soda I think a lot of guys drank beer because it's you know Denmark Sweden you know I didn't drink any beer that makes sense you know, <laughs> but a lot of you know a lot of guys did drink you know, beer and stuff like that um but. Only to the point that, you know, they had to make sure that they were, you know, clear in terms of it. I, I think exactly. they partied afterwards. <laughs> um, but, you can only uh, do so much in assembly and see uh, in a yes. certain level of sobriety. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And I think pretty much everything was in assembly. Uh, yeah, no, you definitely need to be sober for that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I did that years. I did that years ago, and oh my gosh, yeah. I barely do that sober. I can't imagine after a few brewskis trying to <laughs> trying to code something in that. Yeah, no. I, I learned assembly too. Again, I was not a good programmer, but what it did was it helped me understand what the programmers were dealing with, the limitations, uh, trying to understand memory, trying to understand all these things. So. I learned from the best, and they would sort of like, hey, try this. So I got a, I got a, I think, what did I do? A thing with spinning uh, cubes or like spinning sprites and stuff like that. But what I liked about the assembly was that it's, it's so down to the core of the machine that you start understanding what a computer is, where like now we have so many levels above it that it's a mystery. And it was a mystery to me too. I remember like when I looked at the computer, I would start up the computer, I'm like, why is it like this? I didn't really understand it. But then when you start programming, you go, oh, okay, got memory here. We got the addresses here. I'm throwing the sprites. So it started making sense. As an artist, I tried to, so I, I was happy that, that I did that because I could better understand sort of like the, the programmer's dilemma, of like trying to make this thing work. Um, exactly man i really wish i grew up programming back in that day where you had to actually manage your memory make sure everything that crashes nowadays you just throw everything on the stack and it usually uh, deletes it and does garbage collection for you right uh, yeah i think i think if i would have done that i would have been a way better program than i am today but you know well you um, i think you're yeah, I mean, no doubt you know you can still told you don't have to do this simply but i think it would be actually a good thing to actually just dive into for a brief moment, you know, I mean, to sort of learn that, because um, it actually learns you, it learns your logic, it teaches your logic. And it's always good for tightening up the bolts on on code, you know. Like, I mean, it's fine to to use C for most stuff, but then when you've got to get in there and really fine tune things yes. for, you know, timing and memory allocation and stuff like that, uh, bus contention and stuff like that, then it's really important to be able to address the exact, you know, memory. It's exactly. You know, this is the thing. So when I, when I started learning, I actually started learning C first. And my problem with C, and I, it's probably, I don't know if it's how it is now, but I just remember like there would be a, one bug in the, in the program and I would just get lines and lines of stuff. 
And I'm like, what am I looking at? Because, you know, I was trying to figure out what was the problem. But the assembly crashes and there's no necessarily information about it. And so I remember like taking things out. Okay, I'll remove this. Oh, it still runs. You know what I mean? So I would, I would get to the problem that way. And assembly was easier for me to, to do it that way. So how did this experience, this entire, you know, Amiga demo scene hacking experience, how did that lead you into professional game design? So it gave me the skills uh, to sort of like do games and it was the natural thing to do next. So I remember like when we were actually doing the, the demos and stuff like that, all of us were talking about making games and it was sort of like, but it was a big endeavor and you know so i remember like that's when i went to america and i got here and i was still doing some stuff with graphics for the guys back in denmark and stuff like that um but my thing was like i was i went to an art school so i went to la i wanted to do fine art actually but um so i did all the sketching and all that stuff but the computer stuff, my skills were sort of like rare at the time because most artists at that time were like scared of computers because computers were like, you know, it was like, you know, it's kind of like, that's ah, a little hard. Um, so basically what happened was I went to buy my computer at a store somewhere in Redonda Beach in LA and uh, basically they had hired a guy from Germany uh, to uh, to work on a game and they were actually looking for an artist and so while I was buying this computer they were like oh wait a minute who are you and stuff like that and so anyways I ended up making a game on the Amiga uh, Fantastic Voyage um, and that was the beginning for me to uh, start looking elsewhere also in terms of opportunities and I replied to an ad or something with Virgin Games and uh, yeah, and then I went down there and talked and then boom, I was in Virgin Games. And that was like, a, I, I don't know what it is. It, it was like, I was so blessed basically to be put in that place at that time because that was when Dave Perry got to, to Virgin Games at the same time. And so this team of guys got together at the right time at Virgin and you know we ended up making some pretty this cool- be, This was before, before Shiny, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, you yeah, mentioned yeah, so, Dave, Dave Perry. He was uh, – so he he's the one who's infamous for all those, like, vertical uh, platformers. Those, those, like, the Lion King, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, Aladdin, you know, which was really big for Virgin. Yes, so Dave came from England, and he brought all his knowledge in terms of games, and he had his platform game engine that was pretty much ready. There's already another game on it. So we started with Global Gladiators. Then Disney came to Virgin. Um, and I remember Martin Alperson. He was the president of Virgin Games. And he was one of those uh, creative guys, business guys as well, right? So he understood that sort of like, you know, working with brands and stuff like that. And he was, he was a really great president. And so I think that's also so, some of the success of Virgin Games at that time was him actually sort of like getting people together, sort of same with Scavenger. 
Um, but yeah, so we made Jungle Book, and Jungle Book was uh, at the time with Jungle Book. I can't remember. Um, it was Disney was so happy with what we were doing, and another team were working on Aladdin, and it was going nowhere, and they had problems and stuff like that. So they came to us, and I remember the meeting where they were like, "Good news, guys. Uh, we're we're gonna do another thing. We're gonna do Aladdin and Jungle Book." And I remember like, that's just crazy. And I remember like, we can't, that's, that's not a smart idea. And so anyways, but what we ended up doing was we focused on Aladdin, which was made in like, I could be wrong, but it was like four, four or five months or something like that. Like three months, four or five. It was insane. Oh my gosh. Like everyone was crunching on that thing. That, that's, that's like late nights all the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, it was crazy, but we were like a well-oiled engine because, again, we were just, Mike Beats would do the animation, I was doing the backgrounds, and we were so, we were like, you know, it was just running. It was like, it, that's the thing what happens is when you have a good team and you just, it just goes like this, you can, yeah. you can make amazing things. So was was Jungle Book the first one that was like that? Is Jungle Book predates Aladdin and and was so that it was kind released? Of... Yeah, it was released afterwards. We were, we were making Jungle Book first. That's where you kind of developed that whole uh, the workflow that that engine, not really engine, but like the whole design, all the design yeah, elements so, and stuff. Yeah, exactly. We're working with Disney. We're we're working with Patrick Gilmore, uh, and our relationship was really good. I remember like getting basically these uh, beautiful drawings concepts as they were working on the film and I, I was trying to really make sure that the color palettes were good uh, so that, that they fit with the movie and the scenes in the movie and stuff like that and on the genesis you had like no colors so it was, it was tough to do but but yeah no it was it was really uh we, we were working really well and disney was really happy with us and that's why they came to us and said we have this team that's already working on this thing but we'd rather give it to you but can you do it? And, uh, you know, we finished in the time, but yeah, the guys were working like crazy hours during the time. Jeez, did, uh, I did actually was wondering, were you ever able to meet uh, Branson at all? Yes, 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 he came. Um, I remember he was uh, completely jet lagged. <laughs> <laughs> was that uh, the years when he was trying to get into space before, uh, before the, the last couple of weeks. This was, so I remember him going around and seeing us and we would show him stuff on the computers and stuff like that. But he had so many companies that like many companies he had never seen. Like, I mean, the guy is running oh. so many different things, you know? So yeah. he's sort of like, Oh yeah, the Virgin games. Let me check it out. I mean, he was a really cool guy. Um, and what's interesting is actually sort of like some of the things that he was doing back in the days before with music inspired Daniel to sort of do what we did with scavenger. Right. Right. For sure. And it definitely had that vibe, that vibe. But uh, speaking of that, um, your, your co-founder, your co-founder with scavenger was uh, Daniel small, but uh, uh, for, at least uh, between me and Dave, it's been really hard to find any good contact leads on Daniel. Can you tell us really a little bit about him and how you, you guys came together as business partners? Yeah, sure. So again, he was working at Virgin games as a programmer. He was working on the, you know, Demolition Man uh, for the 3DO, and he was doing the video compression because back then there was no player in a sense. You had to actually program the compression of the videos. Yeah, no MPEG support or whatever. Oh, no, I mean, unless no, you got the add-on. Yeah. There's nothing, right? Yeah, he was working on that, and we would have lunch together, 
And, uh, you know, and then I would talk to her about, oh, yeah, I have some guys in Copenhagen. And, uh, oh, yeah, they're working on this thing. And they're trying to make, make a game on the Genesis. Uh, but the problem is that they don't have any manuals. <laughs> and back in the days, to understand, you couldn't just uh, develop for a machine. You had to have the permission. So you had to have, you know, basically they would approve a company. Okay, you can do a game. You can do a game. So, and what the guys were doing was they were hacking the system. So they were actually uh, taking this genesis and reverse engineering it. Mm. And I, I can't remember if I sent them the manual. I don't think I did. <laughs> I well, don't think on. I did. Did you just say you had some guys in Copenhagen or Daniel had some guys in Copenhagen? No, no, no. This, is, this was friends of mine. Oh, it was friends of yours. Okay, because yes. he's an American, right? Like from Los Angeles or something, or or from the East Coast. Uh, I'm yeah, not he's, sure. He's from New York. Okay, from New York. So, so his connection to Copenhagen to or to the European hacking scene of it is through you, right? Yes. He didn't have it. Okay, all right. Okay. Yeah. So basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the guys were basically wanted to make a game. They had this driving game, and um, you know they were trying to make this game. They were trying to basically re reverse engineer the the. The Genesis, which is why they got so good at it. What what uh, game is this that we're talking about? Does it have this, a name? This is the game that was never released. It was just them playing, but it, it eventually would become Subterranean. Oh, okay. They were working on the, uh, the driving game, but they changed ideas, and then they did Subterranean. So is this Xyrinx we're talking about? Yes, Xyrinx. Yes. Xyrinx. So they yes, were probably like the earliest team, the earliest scavenger team was Xyrinx. Yes. Okay, so cool. They, so, yeah, and I'll connect you basically the dots here. So they were cryonics and silence. And cryonics were the, 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 the demo team that we were working with. So I was helping. I did two demos with cryonics. So it was David and Karsten and Jens, uh, you know, and Michael Bala and Jacob. And so basically, so, yeah, Sirens was cryonics, basically before they became Cyrus. Um, and so they're working on the game. And then I started talking to Daniel. I'm like, you know, these guys, can we help them? Stuff like that. And then Daniel, you know, was thinking, okay, he wanted to basically, he was sort of, again, the visionary in terms of as a business, right? Starting something, starting Scavenger. And um, so we started talking about it. And the guys in Denmark were working in Copenhagen, but they weren't necessarily together. So what we did with Scavenger was we started out, um, you know, Daniel and me would put our savings and then we sent them to Copenhagen. So they could basically, some of them could quit their jobs and some of them could focus on the programming and focus on the game. And that became subterranean. And then Daniel and me would go and basically find a someone that could buy it, which ended up being Sega. So, and then what, what happened was at Virgin Games, once things got moving, Daniel were like, you know, I, we, I think we got to go, you know, and we went to Boston. Um, so we, we were the first to, to leave Virgin Games. And, you know, I remember like, you know, I was super excited. Uh, I was also nervous, right? Because this is sort of like you're starting something from scratch. You're starting to do a business. Um, and again, I, I just can only say that Daniel really, um, yeah, he had a great vision in terms of what we could 
try to accomplish, which is not an easy thing. Wasn't there another game though on the Genesis before? It was like Red Red Alarm or Red Alarm. Red Zone. Red Zone. Red Zone. Okay, yeah, yes. and that did that did some crazy stuff on on the Genesis in terms of graphics. Like it did, yes. it did some like black and white video. Yeah, so he was doing the video compression, like you said. So you probably used those chops to to get some stuff going on the Genesis. Uh, so all that was Sirens. Oh, that was Sirens. Okay. Well, so okay, so we had different teams. So also Michael Pearson, which is Sax. Uh, he was. I was working with him. We were making games. So we were. So all of us were working, right? So I was also helping out with some of the games and stuff like that. Um, but in terms of Red Zone, Red Zone, as I recall, was um, again because. How do I say it? Sort of like, I think it was artists. I, I, I might be wrong here, but I think it was Jacob or someone was, an artist was saying, oh, wouldn't it be cool to do this? And he asked Karsten. And I think Karsten was like, he was probably thinking that David was going to do it. So he was like, oh, yeah, you could do that. And so the artist started putting all these things together to the idea of having a, 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 a rotation thing, which you could do on the SNES. And Nintendo was easy to do this because the hardware did it. But on the Genesis, there was nothing. And then I think David was like looking at, at uh, his, the artist, and he was like, um, you can't do that. <laughs> that. That's impossible on the Genesis. <laughs> but nothing is impossible. That, that's right, because whenever, I mean, that's the thing. I have to see, I've, I've been blessed to work with some of the best, most brilliant people. I mean, David is his programming skills and stuff like that. Again, it all came from the demo scene, being able to push and play with things and push yourself. I mean, David, I don't think he finished high school, but he's a genius. And so, so he was like, start, you know, thinking like, hmm, you know, and then they came up with this idea of, of this, you know, basically the rotation. And that's the only game in, on the Genesis that, that does that. We're talking about like the, the, Face down or uh, top view helicopter thing yes. going on, right? Yeah, and and, that, and that's okay. So that yeah, exactly. And we were trying to sell that game because, and that's the thing. That's the business side. That's very very hard, right? Because you get no, 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 right? And that's the thing we learned, and I learned also is that when you're making something, you kind of think I'm going to make the very best thing, and then people will come. But unfortunately, that's not true. Because sometimes when you come with something, uh, and that's happened actually, we went to EA, we went to Electronic Arts with Red Zone, and they were working, what was that? They had a big uh, franchise with helicopters. I forget what uh, You're talking about uh, Strike, uh, Desert Strike? Yeah, it, something like that. Exactly. Yeah, EA had their Jungle Strike, Desert Strike. That's and, it, that's and it, that's they it, were, yes. They were some good games too. I think on the, the, the Saturn even did get... Uh, one of those games and it, and it was a very, very high production value, but yeah. Yes. So you guys had with red zone, definitely that, I mean, it's talked about on YouTube a lot, how it was, a you know, it was a showcase for what the Genesis could do like uh late game, pushing the Genesis to its limits, you know, considering mm-hmm. it was a, a console from 1989, you know, and, and this game was like really, you know, there were a few games that did that in the mid nineties when you already had the 32 bit, era coming out and then the, they were really like squeezing every last drop of what that con- what the genesis could do yeah i mean just to give you an idea we had jens who was basically focusing on audio 
which is why I think the sound in the games were really, really good. Uh, you know, of course, Jesper Kut was the decision, so his stuff was awesome. But Jens was programming the C80, to, so that was just focusing on audio. So again, these guys were like squeezing out everything for this thing. Because that's the thing, it's hard to, it's hard to go back in time and look at games back then and go on understanding the level of skill it took to do that. Because now it's like, man, you know, it's like we're, we're seeing uh, super realistic stuff. And now it's like, you go back and you're like, ah, that kind of looks lame. Right? It's a totally different industry. I mean, it, it's yeah. tool. It, it, all the tools are built up and it's yes. almost like a baby could do it. You know, I mean, you read the manual and I'm like, but you could do it. But you guys were literally reverse engineering the hardware a lot of the times, you know, reading information on, we talk, Pat and I talk about this all the time, how like, uh, you guys were that old school developer who knew how to work the hardware. And that is what was expected. That's what Sega going into the Saturn's lifespan just expected a lot of developers to be cool with that. But the industry at that time was going through a seismic shift where you had a bunch of novice developers who expected just, you know, easy to use tools that would kind of do everything for them. And game, com you know, console manufacturers and stuff started accommodating that almost so much to that it became an expectation, you know, uh, like an entitlement. Yeah. You know, that because I, I know, like, yeah, because I know, like, the PlayStation guys. I think the only people that really took really went crazy with it was the uh, the guys at Naughty Dog with Crash. Like the other ones, it's, I mean, a lot of Sony. That's why Sony probably got a lot of the that that uh, the third party people was like, oh, we have all these tools and stuff, so you don't have to. Write all these things and 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 uh, assembly and have to uh, work with two processors and stuff of that nature. Yeah, I mean that was basically the problem was that uh, the skill level it took to make a game in sprites and background compared to a three D engine is like huge. Um, yeah, and so I think that the industry at the time was not prepared to go into three D and. Our guys again, again, and it was not it was Sirens, it was Triton, it was all these teams, right? That came from the demo scene where it was like, okay, you have this much, and you have to make it, you know, run every frame as be perfect. I mean, that was the thing. I remember, like, you know, games during the day, and just with Amiga, you know, you would see cubes and you would see three D games, but they were like, they were like, you know, it was not perfect. It was like this, right? And, you know, David and those guys were like, they would make it smooth, like every frame, 50 frames, 60 frames per second. Just, and, and I think that skill that they learned and also being sort of like uh, unfortunate in the fact that they didn't have any manuals. So they had to sort of like learn it the hard way to actually reverse engineer something. Things meant that they understood the machine better than the guys that probably made the machine. Because right. they came from a software point of view. Um, and that's what I think was with the 32X and Saturn and stuff like that, which is why our guys were perfect for it. They were like, bring it on, you know? And uh, uh, they were excited about it, right? They were like, the Saturn, right? The 32X, you know, let's see what we can make, right? And, and, and again, remember, everything was made from scratch, you know? So the engine was written. You know, the 3D engine was written from scratch, you know, right. from no, knowing their knowledge of what to do and stuff like that. But You mentioned the 32X, and I'm curious. Um, Xyrinx, they're infamous for doing that tech demo that really, uh, I guess, 
showed you know what the what what kind of polygons the 32x could push. There's several copies of this on on uh, YouTube and but were you affiliated at this point with Xyrinx uh, or with the company at, at the point of this demo? Yes. So so this was much later on. Uh, so I can give you a timeline. So basically, we went to Boston. Daniel and I we went to Boston starting Scavenger, and we we brought some programmers over from Europe and some artists from Europe. And then we were working out from Boston as Sirens back in Copenhagen were working on their games. And so, so I want to, I don't know, I guess we can sort of like different directions, but I want to say one thing in terms of what the idea was. Oh, sure. Uh, Go ahead. From, from Daniel and what I learned from Daniel was sort of like the scavenger idea was the whole idea was to enable artists and programmers to sort of like as a team uh, make these games and the teams were meant to be like bands like music bands so so because there's there's kind of like a it's the same feel like like you were kind of like a label like scavenger was almost like a a recording label yes That's that's the sense that i got too and then you would go scouting for for artists basically yeah, yeah. So, so the idea was that you know how we all have our, you know, we all have our egos, and we want to, you know, you know, whatever, right? Scavenger was not the teams, right? The teams were the teams, so they would pick a name, right? And the idea was to have a lot of different teams, bands, basically, right? And then they would compete with each other, trying to be the best, but in a healthy way, not in a negative way, right? In a positive, like. Oh shit, this guy's doing this. And this was all internal, right? So no one was seeing the was stuff we were working on, but we would show it to each other, right? And then like I remember like Sax, uh, you know, Michael Pearson, you know, he was working on he he made the sort of like the tessellation and compression stuff first on the Sega Genesis. Uh, and that was uh, we were working on a game called Nitro Rex, which never was released, but anyways. I was making some, there's a video in there with some big explosions and stuff like that. And I was basically doing tiles and making these explosions out of these tiles. And so, uh, Siren saw that and like, oh shit, we want to do that too. So that's why when you see in Red Zone, you see the video stuff from the beginning, that all came from there. Um, but yeah, the idea was sort of like, we wanted to sort of, Scavenger was sort of like the business entity and this is the thing so the problem with the industry is that you have uh, artists you have studios you have publishers and platforms right and each one has a wall kind of sounds like sega for example with their am teams you know they had a lot of am teams that would uh you know of course am2 was phenomenal am3 and a lot of those teams would probably compete it also reminds me kind of like macintosh in the late in the mid 80s to early 90s where you had the you know you had the macintosh team versus like the apple II team versus you know maybe like the newton team or what and a lot of those internal teams would compete for pride you know or for you know dominance whoever has the most successful product you know uh, yeah, I, I was thinking more like a, like Ian, like e, sort of the capital and like uh, the Beach Boys versus the Beatles, but I do oh, like sure, that analogy. Sure. Well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's that's the idea. It's, it's it's very much like music bands, and that was what Daniel understood was that these guys are like music bands. Instead of making music, they're making games, 
You know, they're making demos, they're making games. Uh, and so I wanted to describe the problem, which is, I think, sort of the same problem today, but in a different way. If you're an artist, you're, if you want to make a game and you're an artist or you're a programmer, well, how do you actually get the team, right? How do you actually find that other programmer that's really good? How do you actually find uh, this uh, art, you know, your programmer, you don't have any good arts. How do you find that great artist, right? And so that's one wall, right? And then the studio, the studio has the problem, like you're making one game. You can only make one game because you're one team, you're a studio. And the problem is that you're always, that's what publishers always did. Publishers always basically use that against the studio. So meaning that, you know, we'll pay you this or we'll do this. And, and but this, the studio is sort of like depending on the publisher, getting commission for the publisher to, to, to make their game. And it was like, yes or no. And that's very hard for a studio because you never know what's next. It's like an artist, you know, what's your next gig, right? And so, and then the publishers had the platform wall, meaning, you know, you had to get permission from the platform to actually publish a game on. So if you wanted to make a Nintendo game, you had to get permission from Nintendo. Yes, you can make a game. Well, they'll say, no, you can't make a game. And that was the problem with the guys in Denmark, right? They were like, oh, we got this Sega Genesis, but we have no way to get permission from Sega to actually make a game on it. Um, so what Daniel understood and what he taught me was that, you know, in order for us to survive, we had to, we couldn't have one game and then another game and then another game because the problem is it's a hit business. And so when you make, you can have the best team, but just like a songwriter or like a music band, you know, you might, you write a really good album and the next album, yeah, it's good, but it's not as good as the first one, right? And the same thing with games, it's the creative endeavor you go into and you're like, you know, uh, you try to do your best, but you never know. And that's where it's hard for, for a studio to survive long because just once that one bad game comes out, what happens, right? A lot of times they just die. So for Scavenger and for us, the idea was we have to become a publisher. And how do we do that? And that's where it was really crazy. And I know I know a lot of people looked at us as crazy because what we were doing was, I don't think anyone else, most people didn't understand what we were doing. And that's again was Daniel understood that we have to you know, basically uh, get these teams together to become big enough that we can become a publisher. Um, and so, so what, another thing that Daniel always did was with the guys that came on board, so if we find a new team, we would talk to them about the business. So we would literally take them to a restaurant, we would sit them down, and Daniel would tell them about the business. And, and we tried to be very open about basically what we were trying to do. Um, and so, yeah, so that's, that's why you, what we're seeing is that we grew really fast. So what we did was when we earned some money from Subterranea, we earned some money from Red Zone, it all went straight to other teams. And, and back in the day, it was possible because games were not yet the monsters that they are now. I mean, games are like huge now. 
right? So you have hundreds and hundreds of people making games. It is changing a little bit. I want to say one thing that it's changing with VR and stuff like that. And because uh, engines now are like, you know, basically Unreal or Unity, you just go in and you, you don't have to make an engine. So you have the ability for a small team to do it again. Which is good. I'm glad that that's coming back. It's crazy though that VR VR was a big thing in '95, and here it's a big thing in 2021. Yes. In a different sense, but I mean, you know, VR has changed several times. But we've still people wearing those big bulky headsets. You know, we have all the indie games oh, and people just, sure. people in their basements just making games. It's a pretty great time for gaming, to be honest. Oh, totally. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff going on right now because again, you can. Uh, it's like you don't have to have too many people. You can accomplish things, and and then also you have the ability to publish yourself. Really, right now you don't have what was back then. Really, ginormous walls, you know. So so that's great now. That you know. You had several teams who were very good at pushing a hardware, very good at getting technical, creating new creating new rendering methods, you know, we'll get into it like with the voxels or with the NERMs or, uh, you know, doing some incredible visual stuff on the Saturn uh, and, and PC, you know, other consoles as well. But I mean, Patrick and I have noticed in the past, we've observed that the games do have, a, have that kind of tech demo feel. And it's like, how do you, that becomes, I think, um, a challenge to take what is uh, what is a technically uh, what is a technical marvel and turn it into a cohesive gaming experience. You know, something that the something that the studio or something that the you know console manufacturers will greenlight for a game. You know. Yes. So now we're coming into the sort of like it, it's a creative and a business problem, right? Uh, creatively, the problem is that it's interactive. So games are notoriously super hard to make. That's why, actually, when you look at the, the like Nintendo, you know, they'll take forever to make a game. But it's because they're doing it the right way. Uh, and a lot of games, and I think still today, uh, the problem is that they have there's big teams and they have to finish it. And it's the thing. It's like, just let's, you know, let's ship it. It's like the joke, right? Ship it. You know, is, is it ready? Just ship it. And that, yeah. and that's the problem. So I, and I understand it's a, too, it, it's a, it, it is the problem with the business because the reality is, well, it's expensive making a game, right? So you have to ship it. <laughs> so on, on that side, I understand the business side, but on the creative side, making a great game is really hard because um, there's so many things that can go wrong. You know, and so what we said with the scavenger, we saw a lot of different things. Like I saw a lot of different things because I was sort of like the one that was traveling all over and hiring people and putting teams together. Um, you know, so we would have the guys in LA, you know, they were like, they were just running. They were doing it. Sirens was running and gunning and they were doing their thing, right? And we would just, as friends, hang out with them and stuff like that, but they were just running. And we preferred having basically, I almost look at it as like Navy SEALs, right? It's like we prefer having the guys doing what they want to do. But you have to trust them. So, and we totally trust the sirens. I mean, it's like they're they're brilliant, right? So no problem. 
with the other teams, some of the teams uh, we had in Europe, we had some really what would be sirens at the very beginning, right? So they hadn't made a game or two. They were just making the, their first game. That was where the challenges was. And what our philosophy was is this is the reason why we wanted to be a publisher, to have enough games so that we could have a couple strong games that could support the ones that were a little bit weaker but could get a little bit more time to to finish, right? So because I, I believe in talent. Like, for example, there's so many examples I can give you of, like, uh, believing in talent. I remember uh, Darren was an artist in, uh, I think it was up in Santa Barbara, and he had never worked on a game. He'd never done any computer graphics. But the minute I saw his sketches, I was like, he's really good. And he ended up doing all the 3D characters. At the time, it was for Terminus, which later became uh, Messiah, the game that was released as Messiah. Right, uh, yeah. And so, again, so it's, it's that thing. You have to trust, but it's sometimes when you trust, it's sometimes, you know, you have a person that, because that was the thing we learned. And we had, we had also had problems, right? <laughs> it was like, you know, we had, you know, some people were uh, very super talented but difficult to work with. And those guys, we tended to eventually let go because um, right. it, it's the team has to work really well together, right? <laughs> right. Uh, so this is like the, the, this is the issues with game developing is, is like you're this team and you're trying to make something that's really hard uh, and that means that it has to just do this. It has to work perfect, right? And you guys had, your teams were pretty small. That's, yes. the, that's, that's the thing. It's like you'd have small teams, where, which would be good because they're friends and they work well together. But it's bad because there's not enough of them to be able to handle the workflow in a deadline kind of time set. You know? so, so it's like, but the thing is, yeah, so we didn't have any deadlines. So, until, uh, until good times. Until, you know? yes. <laughs> until GT. Yes, exactly. Yes. Right. But we'll wait off that. We'll wait on that because yeah, yeah, yeah. we don't want to go too fast. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, but yeah, no, we, we our intentions were that we wanted to have enough teams that we could support the ones who were learning and learning learning curve, right? Getting good, right? And then anyone that wasn't good enough that couldn't handle it, we would then just get you know maybe you're not meant for game development, right? Mm -hmm. But but because we had some of the very best guys. They were attracting other guys. So when I was talking to people and like trying to, you know, basically, uh, you know, hire guys or find guys in the, in the, in the industry or in the demo scene, I would say, Hey, you know, these guys are doing this and I would show them and they'll be like, so they're the talented people were attracted to us kind of, right? Because you're like, Holy shit, these guys, I want to be part of this, right? But I want to be part of it with my own team and show what I can do, right? And that's why we wanted to foster. So, so you'd say your core philosophy and mission statement would be just to get as the best developers as you can and make just awesome, fantastic games, right? Exactly. And have a kind of, it's a little bit like that music band again, right? You get the band together. And I mean, I'm telling you, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> again, you know, the way things were, it was like a music band. You want a John, the John Bonham of programming. You want the Jimmy Page of uh, the Jimmy Page of of, uh, of of writing. You want the Robert Plant of uh, of uh, drawing and art direction. 
Yes, and and that's what we have. I mean, again, from from uh, Sirens to Triton. I mean, Triton Magnus. Again, a brilliant guy. I mean, I, I, you know, the Into the Shadows. I just want to say, like, just give an idea. Like, you know, I remember like we were talking to them. And we were like, we want to bring you guys on. We would love to work with you guys. We'll, you know, have you come to LA and stuff like that. And I remember Miko. This is another example I want to give. Is Miko was I first. So Magnus uh, demo stuff was just amazing, right? I mean, just again, super awesome. Um, and, but then the art was not that strong. And I remember talking to Miko and I was like, you know, your stuff is, your logos are like, they need to be better, right? But again, their team, like what you guys were saying, right? About teams, they were like friends and they wanted Miko to join them. And so they did. So I'm, I'm like, well, let's see, let's see what Miko can do, right? And I believe in giving people chances. And Miko worked his ass off to basically do these beautiful characters. And so, so that's the thing. And with Magnus, I was talking to him on the phone. And this is another thing I want to talk about was brands. So we wanted to teach the guys about brands, you know, how to make a successful game. And these, again, things that I learned from Daniel. Uh, and some of the things, you know, basically the idea is that a lot of times when people make games, they'll watch a movie that night and say, oh, let's do a sci-fi space thing, right? And then two months down the line, they'll see something else, like something completely different, right? UFOs or a Western. And then they'll try to combine things. And the game becomes this mush of like, what is this, right? Yeah, going back on those music analogies, I mean, it's the same. It's the same thing with music. You know, you yeah. you get ideas, something you mush it together. I, I guess maybe it's just the creative process, but it's kind of funny. All these music analogies and just the analogies that we we each make just towards that design philosophy. First of all, that was kind of your that was your role. You you talent scouted. You were in charge of brands. You were in charge of like the look and feel of Scavenger. Um, and there's this saying that goes, "You don't dress for the job you have. You dress for the job you want." And I think that has never been more true than with you guys because here you were like, here you guys were basically um, you know, like a much smaller company than you, you appeared to be because you said, okay, we're just, this is how we're going to seduce or, or, you know, court these new developers to want to work with us, you know, guys like Jesper Kidd or whatever, uh, you know, your E3 booth, I think we need to talk about because you guys just went way above and beyond. And it, we're like the media darlings. I think that's part of the reason why you guys were kind of like media darlings in terms of like all the, the trade mags and stuff like that. We're just talking about scavenger scavenger. Who is this company? You know, right. uh, they came from out of nowhere and yes. it's like they're, they are showing up some of the best booths at E3, you know? So talk about that because I think that that's kind of where a lot of it gets rolling. A lot of the ball gets rolling. Start with e, uh, E395, though. Okay, sure, sure. So this goes back to the idea of branding, right? Again, we wanted to brand. And what we wanted to do, not only from the developer side, but also from the business side, is to communicate clearly, we are making awesome stuff. And that has to be 
throughout everything, right? So the booth, when you go to a booth and a convention show, it's the boring stuff with a banner and you know what I mean? Like some metal thing that they put together and it's not interesting at all, right? You have the games, but it's kind of boring. We, did, we didn't want to do anything like that. We wanted to make something that was awesome. And we wanted to make it so that, you know, when you're playing games, why are we playing games, right? We want to play games because we want to go into another world. We want to experience something. We want to have a story told to us. We want to interact. We want to be these heroes, right? And the same thing with the booth. I mean, why would you want to make something cool? So I remember uh, the very first E3, uh, I think it was like two months before or something like that, uh, you know, we started talking about what should we join E3? We should do it. So, you know, and so we're like, heck yeah, we got to do it. And so, uh, and this is sort of like we were right in Hollywood. So I remember like drawing some sketches. You'll have some sketches there, but I was drawing a sketch and I was sort of seeing this tank and this giant scavenger thing, right? With metal chains and stuff like that, you know, so it should be like really cool. And we wanted to bring the guys into the meeting room that again brings you into the world of scavenger, right? And and so what we went with to some set builders, you know, those set builders are, you know, brilliant, right? And so I would basically art direct it. Uh, and yeah, that, that was the idea. You know, we want, we don't want to be boring, right? And so with the E3, the next E3 year, we went even bigger. I mean, we went huge, you know, as huge as we could uh, mm-hmm. with this, uh, you know, and, and we didn't Spider. spend much money. Yeah, we didn't. didn't I really? say, what? Are you kidding me? You didn't spend a lot of money on that? We spent a lot of money in theory in terms of like we don't have much money. But okay. like, so, like Sega and Sony, they spent millions on their booths. Like literally like, I, I don't know, it's like five million. So, so you guys did more with less is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Like I, So we won the best award for like the, the best, best booth. At the E3, hands down, easy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and so it was, it was. But that's the thing. Like, I think what was our cost? Like eighty thousand dollars or something like that. Oh wow! Right. And that's a yeah. lot, that's a lot of money. We didn't have much money, so it was a lot of money. But if you look at it, it's peanuts compared to Sony or Sega. But yeah, exactly. I mean, and and yours was the and this was the one with the trees and everything, right? And the See, this was the for, spider. Yeah, I remember I had I had a dream this, this about is a spider. The spider. And, yeah, so this idea was again take you into another world. So you have the pyramid, right? And inside the pyramid, you were in this meeting room. But I wanted to make it feel like it was basically this spider coming from an ancient world. So it's like mixing basically like you went like something you dug up. And then you found this ancient technology, right? And inside we had the meeting room and the meeting room was basically lifted off the ground and you were inside this cage and we made, made the bottom, uh, we couldn't put water in unfortunately, but we put some plexiglass in there so it had a reflective water field. So when you looked down, you didn't know how high up you were. <laughs> um, but yeah, we wanted to, again, bring you into this world, right? And the guys that were building this, I remember like when we were make, making this set in Burbank and again, the set builders, they make stuff for movies. So they're super fast. And I, I remember like I had to every day, I was like trying to keep up with them in terms of like art directing this thing. Um, but yeah, we wanted to make it, you know, cool. 
you know? Uh, and uh, so, so we spent money on it, but it's, that's the thing. It's like this. It's a little bit like I go back to games where like when you have no memory, uh, you, what you want to have is you want to have a hero element in the art that looks awesome. And then you have, and then you save memory elsewhere. So what happens is that everything looks really awesome because you have those few hero elements. So this is sort of like our hero element where we spent a lot of money and we look huge, but in reality, we're like a fly, <laughs> you know? We're like exactly. And the things that I think that you influenced just E3 in general with that, that concept, because I mean, I went in 17 and 18 and a lot of these booths look like, you know, what you guys had in the nineties. So like these giant, uh, concept booths, like I know Nintendo had like this, they had the super Mario Odyssey. They had the whole thing look like a city, like, uh, they had like Resident Evil. They had like a, a like a police station sort of design, and it's really, it's really interesting in that that nature that that you influenced so much in that regards yeah. to that design for so little as well. On top of that, I think Sega had a pretty impressive booth at E three ninety six. They had the big knights flying knights character flying through the rings over like this huge. But I mean that was Sega, right? I mean they had like ten times the budget that you guys had. You yeah, know, yeah, I, I think much more than ten times. Oh but, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, I mean they were known to spend like thirty-four million on a commercial, you know, on like a ad cam, a TV ad campaign. So, yeah, for sure. But uh, so so did a lot of that money that you spent on like the E three booths? Did that come from the deal with GT? Uh, how where does that fall on the timeline? Is, is what I'm wondering. How did you get okay. in in bed with GT? So I guess? so GT was um, that was when we were sort of like we were getting fairly big at that time. So we had uh, the guys, Cyrus was finished with Red Song. And so Cyrus was working on Saturn. So that's when they got into the Saturn and they were making Scorcher. And uh, I, we had the, the Swedish team, uh, Triton, uh, Magnus, Nico, Jens, into the uh, shadows. Frederick. Yeah. So we had those guys working on Into the Shadows. Yep. Uh, and I just want to make one thing that I, you know, like in terms of, again, uh, with Triton, what we did was, and this is a little side note, uh, with Triton, what we did was, um, again, teach them about brands, right? But we also sent them a motion capture equipment, which was not, I don't, I think we were the first to do that. Uh, because basically. Uh, you were. Yes, you were the first. Or Triton yeah. was the first that I know of. Yeah. So, so again, that's the reason it's, it's about being smart, right? And we wanted to, like, we saw that Magnus and the guys were like brilliant in what they're programming and stuff like that. But we wanted to sort of like lead them towards branding. And also another thing was we wanted to also, like, I remember being on the phone and I was like talking to Magnus and like, we were talking about, um, the 3D and the whole technology and stuff like that. And as an artist, I was telling Magnus, I was like, if you want to improve something, it's all about lighting. And back then, everything was made by sprites, and you would draw it. And it, you know, you and if you were a really good artist, you would understand lighting. And with 3D at the time, there was no lighting. There was no light maps. And I think Magnus was one of the first, if not the first. Maybe he was one of the Sirens guys, but I can't remember. So, but anyways, I was telling him lighting, lighting, lighting. I was like, gotta do something lighting. And then I remember him 
bringing this 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 demo again where he had the lighting in it and it just blew our minds and then we were like holy cow but the thing was first person and characters are really important in terms of people relating to something wanting to play it right it's like it's it's part of the storytelling and that's why we like Magnus, we love what you guys are doing, but try to you got to figure out something with the character, and that's when we worked on Hunt Down. I started writing a story about Hunt Down and this whole thing, and and I was, as I was doing that, these guys, Magnus came up with this, which was the the castle and stuff like that, and you know they blew us away when we saw it. We're talking about but, in the, Into the Shadows, though, right? For, for folks yes, listening. Yes, this became shadows. Into the Shadows, right? Okay. So we, we shipped the the, uh, the motion capture system to them and they started doing their thing. Eventually they came to, uh, eventually they came to LA and we sent the motion capture later on to Denmark where some guys were working on Aqua. And so they used the motion capture system there. But but yeah, so, so going back, I'm trying to go back here, but, um, yeah, so, so anyways, uh, we had Into the Shadows, we had Scorcher, we had a mock, which was uh, Lemon, which was Saron, Hannibal, and um, uh, Jacob. Um, and so, and then we had Mutt, Mutt Kicker. And so those were the games we were working on. And to kind of give you an idea, every time we were working on a game, we would start looking for publishers. Because we weren't a publisher yet, right? So we were looking for the publishers and saying, hey, are you interested? Are you interested? And that's what Daniel was doing, right? Reaching out. I would go with Daniel and we would go into these meetings and, and basically pitch these things. Uh, GT came in basically. There's some uh, one story I want to talk about Saturn, so maybe we have to go back to that. But anyways, GT, we, we met GT when they were looking for games because they had lots of money. And they had almost nothing. They didn't. They were not a developer. I mean, they were they were their publishing house, right? Um, and and not a very reputable. I mean, so so G- good times. Their whole deal was like taking, basically ripping off existing IPs, uh, yes. but doing it doing it so that it was legal, basically. And that that was their whole bread and butter is like ripping off it, Disney cartoons, you know. Exactly. And so that. And they, they just happen to be lucky enough. They just happen to be like the only person that the only company that said yes to Doom, basically, of all games. And that just happened to be, you know, like uh, publishing that shareware, you know, uh, ended up being a good move for them because uh, they grew overnight. You know, their, their, their you know, bottom line grew overnight and they were like, oh, we have all this money, you know, what? but they're, but uh, the thing is, they remained the same kind of company in terms of their business practices, you know, which is kind of shady, <laughs> you know, at, at least that's my impression from everything, all the research that I've done, you know, I, you know, I don't, I can't speak of them in terms of their videos, but yeah, it was shady. You know, they're basically taking whenever Disney was releasing something, they would put on a, a really terrible <laughs> cheap thing and, and try to sell that off. Right. So it's, it's kind of scamming. You know? Capitalizing, you're capitalizing yes. on uh, opportunities, basically, you know, yeah. it's, uh, it's, it's so, so, so yeah. How did you guys get involved with it? So you guys weren't a publisher you wanted to be, that was the direction you were facing, but, uh, but you needed, uh, some more capital, I imagine. Right. Yeah. I mean, we were trying to grow, right. 
So, uh, you know, at that time, things were starting to where, you know, every month was quite a lot of money for us. And uh, we made that one mistake, which is a, we, you know, I think we hear it all the time, but it, it is a true thing that you should watch out for. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. And that's what we did, right? We put all our eggs in one basket. Instead of saying into the shadows with this publisher and a mock with this publisher or scorch, you know, we, we did, we put it all in one basket, you know, and that was the big mistake we did. Um, we, you know, they came sort of like a wind and dined us with limos and stuff like that. And, uh, um, you know, we should not have done what we did. You know, that was a mistake from our side. Um, was this before of, was 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 this before that first E3 like E395 they 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 lined no, you guys up after 95 Okay so you guys can't you guys had a great booth in 95 it had like the bottom and top thing and you it was very impressive even for for its size and and you as a company so you guys came out of the came almost out of nowhere to a lot of the game trade uh magazines and stuff like that from what I've from what I've read you impressed a bunch of people GT saw it they were just up and coming in terms of interactive stuff, you know, because they just scored big with doom. And so now they were looking for artists, you know, they were looking to capitalize, like I said, on yes. some opportunities. You guys were fresh meat. It was a mutual thing. You needed the capital they yes. needed. And so, um, so they came along after 95, uh, infused you guys with the, the, the four game contract, right? So mm-hmm. go ahead just, just for clarity. What are the four games that were on that contract? So that was uh, Mud Kicker, and that was a Mock Scorcher, and Into the Shadows. And Into the Shadows, okay. Yeah. And so E three ninety six rolls around with the Spider Booth. That's after your deal with GT. Yes. Now, I, if I correct, I, if I remember correctly, the d- the deal I think was that you were supposed to have those games out in ninety six, correct? So at end of ninety six. Somewhat, I you know again, I I I don't remember being a specific deadline. Right, more of so, a. So because I, I remember, so this is the thing. Um, um, so yeah, we we can talk about this now. Um, I remember we finished a mock, we finished Scorcher, uh, and I remember that. Um, I, I can't remember which one of them was or the Scorcher on the mock, but. The, the number two game was basically finished and it was gold master and it was done all us, the bug testing was done, everything like that. Um, and we had, we still working on into the shadows, which was a much bigger game. And the team was very ambitious. So, you know, we were like, we needed time with that. And my, the same thing with my kicker, which was a driving game. Uh, and then after that, we were like, okay, so we were basically due for a payment from uh, from, from uh, GT Interactive once delivered those two games, um, and that's when things went bad. Yeah, do you remember so the, the infamous Saturn, early Saturn launch where Clint Clancy basically said, "Oh yeah, it's it's released now at E3." 
true. Did that have any effects on you guys? I mean, we, you weren't. So we were, we were totally in the Sega camp. Like we were not in the Sony camp at all. Like Sony came, so much, Sony a little bit came from nowhere too, right? Because Sony was not looked upon as a, you know, this is their first thing. They, came they weren't in. seen as a threat before yeah, they, they were not out. seen as a threat. And I think Sega did not take them serious. It's one of those things you try to learn. You should never underestimate anyone. Um, so, so Sony came out of nowhere with a great platform, easy to develop for, where the Saturn was not easy to develop for. And Sony came in with 3D. And so all of a sudden, it was like the whole industry was like, because every time you do a big step, it, it sort of like shakes the industry, right? And the industry has like five years and something changes in five years. Technology changes always. And this was a big technology change. So all of a sudden, games were becoming 3D and not 2D. And Sega was totally caught off guard. Uh, they should have probably known. Of course, because, Virtual yeah, Fighter. They because again, <laughs> if you look at the arcades, right? The arcades were 3D. Yeah. And I remember playing Virtual Racer like crazy, and I loved it in arcades. And they should they should have learned that thing that that is what they should bring into the home. They thought they could get away with uh, you know doing going the cheaper route, and but but the the public already had a taste for for 3D in the arcades and so it was like there was there was that expectation you know yeah no no i mean again it's like I mean, 3D is so much better right i mean you're going into the world uh what i remember like uh, the guys were excited we were excited about the set because it was more power and so and they you know again david and the guys they had the engines running you know so so they were like Let's get this stuff in. And that's what the 3D and the 32X demo is about, which is basically, you know, Carson and David's engine, 3D engine. And we were showing something that was way, 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 I mean, just insanely. No one else could do this basically on the Saturn, on the 32X. Um, but the, yeah, so the, the problem was, I think, with Sega, I don't know in terms of business why they did certain things, but again, they released the 32X. Uh, in America, you know, and they were relying on thinking that that could sort of like uh, be okay, but it's sort of like a mixed message, meaning, yeah, this is this is a budget thing, this is something we can do, and then the Saturn comes in later. But I think everyone was confused about that whole thing, and so and then for us, you know, we were like working on that, um, and I, it's interesting. I remember like. We found out that basically, if I can remember, maybe David will, can correct me on this, but I remember is I think that the Sprite engine, so the Saturn was no 3D. There was no 3D, uh, you know, hardware. Well, there, well there's three, the, the SH2s can do 3D math just fine. It's just that yes. they they tell the VDPs to draw it as sprites. You know, the, yes, you know, exactly. It was yeah, so it's, just a, it's just a perspective warped or, you know, it's blitting. Sprite, it's, 2D sprites. Exactly, around the it's splitting sprites. And yeah. the hardware was doing it twice. Right. If you're if you're using both in, both CPUs. But of course they're they are using the same memory bus. So so they have to kind of, you know, wait for instructions. You know, you, it, it, it 
it was hard for a lot of developers to use that second processor, either because of the timings or just because they didn't have that special development unit where they could debug it, they could, where they could actually debug the extra processor. So some people would just basically give it, send an instruction to turn the darn thing off. Like the first thing they would just say, okay, turn off, and now we'll just use one SH2, you know? Uh, yes. is that, was that the case for you guys, for your teams, or were you guys actually utilizing both? I think I'm... I'm I, I can't speak for David or for them. I don't know. But I think we were using both because we were doing textured, gross-shaded, textured polygons on the machine. Right. Uh, and, and that's where Sega actually brought us to Japan. So because, um, I mean, we, sh we showed this to Sega. And a little bit like when we had meetings and stuff like that, we would do a little bit like the booth. We were always doing like loud music and stuff like that. Okay. You know, so all the testers would come in and stuff like that too. Um, but yeah, I remember showing it. And so Joe Miller brought us to Japan. And so we traveled to Japan and we met Yusuzuki and we made, you know, met their team. We met the M2 and stuff like that. And, you know, that was a great honor for us. And it was exciting being Sega and with all its history and stuff like that. Um, but they were interested in basically licensing, basically using the engine for their games. And for, I think, probably also Virtual Fighter. I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure, but I'm guessing here. Uh, but I, I remember, like, I remember the meeting when we were showing the, the demo to the guys. And, and Japan is very different, right? So you have the, 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 the corporate. It's much, it's not, it's more like, I don't know how to describe, but you know the culture. It's a little different, right? It's very, uh, very conservative. Yeah, very, very conservative. Yeah, reserved and conservative. And... Reserved, and, exactly. We uh, are talking. So, we are talking about the Xyrinx 32x demo, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. So we show. So we showed that in uh, in Japan at Sega's headquarters, and I remember the meeting when we were showing it to the and and Yusuzuki and some other gentleman. I, can't, I forget his name. But they literally like got some of the programmers in <laughs> and they were like looking at the programmers, looking at the thing, looking at the programmers and everyone was very somber. And I was like, I was like, I could kind of sense that like, you know, porque, you know, why, 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 you know what I mean? Like, why can you guys do this? Right. Um, and, uh, and, and I think Daniel in the elevator, I think we were with Yu Suzuki and, Daniel brought up the whole the whole problem with the hardware and stuff like that, and um, but yeah, so so yeah, so we were there. Um, for us, we were trying to think of what what value would be and stuff like that, and it could have you know given us more funding. Daniel decided not to to you know choose that to to you know give it to to Sega um, to but, license that engine. Yeah. You know, so it, you know. Do you think maybe you guys were the push that Sega needed, and and some aspects in that case to be like, it's like, why aren't you guys doing this level of uh, of attention to detail and this this sort of uh, functionality? I think so. I, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that you know David and the guys' engine uh, shook the world for them, right? Because you know, again, you've never seen anything like you know they were near what we had, right? So so you know, I think that they. Uh, they understood it and they probably had the pressure from Sony as well, 
right? So it was a combined thing that like, oh, holy cow, we got to really, you know, and they kind of lost it, right? Because it's like Sega just didn't continue and, and PlayStation continued and, you know, I would argue, you know, I mean, I know no offense in saying this, but I mean, we're, we're this far back. I I don't, I I honestly think if he had licensed that engine to them, that the 32 X might've had a better chance to be honest with you, because I, I, you know, there's a story that goes something like they tried to use Yuji Naka's Knights engine for Sonic extreme. And had he given his blessing, you know, they, they, you know, Sonic extreme might've happened, you know, because it was a really good engine, but it was a pride thing or I don't know, for whatever reason, he didn't want them to use that engine. And so, you know, of course, the game kind of just floundered in limbo. Um, I've seen, you know, of course, a lot of people have seen the 32X demo. It really was, you know, it really was, you know, good, pretty good 3D on the 32X and uh, probably would have been helpful in, you know, streamlining the production of more 32X games. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why Daniel decided not to, to license that. I'm, I'm trying to remember, uh, you know, because we were always talking about business. We were always talking about what, I mean, again, to just scavenger was a storm, right? It was literally a storm. It was like we were doing things fast. We were trying to juggle things. There was so much on our minds. And, you know, again, only Daniel would truly, you know, know why he decided that I, you know, you know, we were just juggling so much. Speaking of sort of the scavenger stuff, I'm very curious about the but what really can you tell us about the two games that Scavenger did release on the Saturn, which is a, a Muck and Scorcher. So I, I guess we'll start with a, a Muck, uh, sort of, for you that don't know, it's the under, underwater ex- exploration combat. You play all-terrain vehicle where you can turn into a sub and stuff. And you just, you just explore and just go on missions for this unnamed group. What is your memory experience you had with this title and uh, really outside of what the public already probably knows about it? Like, do you have any, like, so I wasn't on the team, so that was sort of Soren and because I was running around doing a bunch of things. But Soren and yeah, Soren and Jacob was working on that, so that was the idea. It all started from Soren's uh, programming. He had this voxel engine, um, and you know it was from what I remember. You know, again, I remember Soren being one of those rare programmers who actually had. Um, the skill to not only program visually well, but also actually game test and get the controls really fun. So he was really right. good at that. And I think that was the, what made the mock fun was the shooting. And it was just because they really worked on getting that well. Um, and then Jacob did the, you know, Jacob, you know, again, coming from the demo scene as well was very technically minded technically aware of memory and stuff like that so he could easily work with Jay, you know soren to to fit within the programming you know because again you know like the programmer figure out a way to do something and then as an artist you have to try to like okay well how do i actually make this work you know visually um but yeah no i i like the game and lemon they so i think they delivered on that game first like that was the first game to actually uh, to come out, and I think it met the deadline uh, with GT. 
yeah, you know, maybe you probably you might know better than <laughs> just, I. <laughs> just, yeah, well, just from recent uh, cramming, cramming, and and research. Yes, but it, yes. it seems it seems to me that Scorcher, and I I think Pat agrees with me on this that uh, the, Scorcher feels kind of like an unfinished game. Uh, it you can definitely tell that they were kind of crunching to get it to get it out because they'd already kind of gone over the the deadline and you know GT were giving you guys a hard time. You know, yeah, this was when things started getting a little bit difficult. This was uh, uh, also Michael Bala, who is a super talented artist, was part of Sirens, and he decided that he wanted to go more into visual effects and do things in editing because he was also he loved films and stuff like that. So he had some connections. Uh, Lars von Trier, which is a film director in Denmark, so he decided to go back to Denmark. So uh, Jacob actually picked, you know, picked up on some of that things in terms of art. So that's, you know, so yeah, you know, it, it was, uh, it could have been more. It's know. still, it's visually impressive. It's fun to play actually with the, you know, the shoulder triggers uh, to kind of do the, the, it was, uh, there's obstacles you have to jump over. There's a lot going on there. It's the entire package is what, what, where it feels like it's kind of rushed. Like even co- compared to a muck, I mean, a muck has like a sort of a storyline in that regards and, and, and Scorcher just kind of throws you in there and it's like, let's do it. But I mean, it's still for what it was, it was a lot of fun. So you need more time. Yeah. I, I think that, I think it was the thing with Mike Bala, the artist leaving, um, so, you know, that's, that's one of those challenges, keeping teams together and stuff like that. You know, there's so many dynamics going on, uh, making a game. So, but yeah, that, that could have been better. Yeah. Yeah. And but I um, like the game. So I, one of the things I would say in our games were sometimes they were too hard. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and that comes to sort of like the European, like, you yes. know, oh, it's gotta be like really tough. Otherwise it's no good. Right. It's like, you know, I don't, I don't, you know, now I don't think like that. I think it's like, it's an, it's easy that way. You got to ease people in. Right. And then ramp it up. Yeah. Yeah. But it was definitely, it was a ton of fun, even though I was really bad. I was really bad at it, but it was a, it was a lot of fun. And I definitely, like, it, it seemed like at first, like, oh man, but now it's like, oh, it's, I get it. Got all the concepts and let's go. I, I remember with Scorcher was the, the physics engine. Because yes. now we're going into not just 3D, but there's actually physics going on. And I remember like that, you know, they were trying to program this and it's a fast game. So that means that the faster things go, the more the collision has to be accurate. And we had a, we had Sammy, who was our mathematician. He was sort of like the, the genius in terms of actually getting equations down because that's how you make things fast. So Sammy would help David. So David would be like, okay, I, I have to have this calculated, but the equation is too long or whatever. And then Sammy would come in and go, okay, he would literally just sit there and think, and then he would come and say, oh, okay, this is what you do, David. And, and so um, like Sammy was about robot vision and stuff like that, a brilliant guy. But yeah, so that's what we figured out in terms of, I remember that there's a sphere and stuff like that. So I, I do remember that. Again, you know, I didn't program you on that. That's that's all David and stuff. But and f- fun fact, real quick, is that uh, Scorcher actually got a package, like fully pa- fully packaged release in Japan, and then they mm-hmm. never like put it out. 
So it's like the rarest Japanese. <laughs> it's like the rarest yeah, Japanese I, Saturn game. <laughs> I remember that. I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, that's that's. I, you know, who knows if we? Some of us have some cartridge somewhere. I remember, like, actually, I had tons of stuff that I threw out. Oh no! I, I, didn't, I didn't throw that out, but I remember I threw out some cartridges of Cool Spot, and I'm like, man, why did I do that? Because you know that was like ten years ago, and I was like, ah, oh, it's probably not important. But it's like you don't. Really? Yeah, it would have been cool to have now. <laughs> yeah, if you saw the Scorcher things around, you could probably make a cool uh, couple thousand dollars with that on, yes, on uh, Yahoo Auctions yes. or something. Oh, yeah, no kidding. Easily. <laughs> Maybe more. Because <laughs> like, it, it exists, but it doesn't exist. <laughs> right. Yeah, it was never put out in the stores, right? Exactly. And I actually did have a question on that. Um, I, it's kind of skipping ahead, but do you know if you have uh, any of the, any unreleased, like, sort of any, like, prototypes or betas for any of the unreleased uh, Scavenger games? I don't. Maybe some of the programmers do. I know that I don't have much of my art. That's the problem with digital is that you lose it along the way. Mm. Um, if you want to put us in touch with anybody who does. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yes. probably should get into the list of unreleased games. This is just what we know of what games are unreleased projects. So we had Heavy Machinery, and I'm, I understand it's Team Zyrinx on the 32X, which was like an off, off-road weapons racer. Can you tell us about that a little bit? So Heavy Machinery, I believe, is probably Nitro Rex. Nitro Rex. Yeah, and I think because this is that this is what happens in our development was a team would start working on a game, and then we would try to you know find a publisher, and sometimes along the way you know we wouldn't find a publisher. So certain things like Nitro Rex, uh, we never found a publisher for. Um, so I think Heavy Machinery somewhere might have been someone remembered that, and maybe I think Sachs might have been working on that. I'm trying to remember, but yeah, that that to me, heavy machinery makes sense to be Nitro Rex. That was a Zyrinx game. That was a, that was team. That was actually Sax and me. Sax. Uh, yeah, Sax. Okay, so Sachs, that's Michael Pearson. Uh, How do you that, spell that? How do you spell that? That's a team name. It's it's his nickname that we just kind of used, but it's Michael. Okay. His name is not Michael. Um, he was the programmer. So he was, you know, so I was working with Michael. I was working with Michael mostly in the demo scene. So we were working together a lot. And so on the Genesis, so while the guys were working on Red Zone, he and I and two other artists and an, an animator was working on Nitro Rex. Um, and uh, yeah, so that was first a Genesis game. But then we got the, the hardware for 32X, so that's probably where the 32X comes in. Right. Uh, but unfortunately, it, you know, it wasn't. You know, yeah. Based on the footage you sent me, I think you're right because it, it lines up with some of the screenshots that I've that I've seen. 
yeah. for for heavy machinery. So, but I'm not surprised it didn't find a publisher because it was 32x and <laughs> nobody wanted to take a risk on on that uh, stopgap yes. of the console. Th- that's the interesting thing you find out later on the reasons why you know why things didn't happen. Right? This one I actually is, have a bit of an interest in X-Men Mind Games by Team Xyrinx on the 32X. So as for people that don't know, it was a canceled X-Men game that was sort of a over-the-shoulder or like just behind a scroller. So you basically played as Bishop. Basically, they have a demo of it online that I guess leaked online where it looks like a, a, pla- a, sh- a chateau or something. And you're just fighting ninjas and stuff. Yes. <clears throat> so I think this was something that... I'm trying to remember this. Might I'm trying to you know recall here, but I think it was Sega or someone approached us because it was you know a licensed game, right? So they were coming to us as a developer to make this, and I think this was one of the things that we put together as a demo for them, and I don't think it went any further than that as a demo. Yeah, I think there was a Spider-Man game on the 32X, which also didn't do too well. So maybe they pulled the plug on this because of. You know, it, it, it most likely has something to do with the 32X, you know, being the 32X and then also the, you know, the other Marvel game kind of failing. Yeah, Probably, but I mean, yes. it, it, it's fully playable online if anybody wants to to find it. I think it's on several oh, websites. Yeah? So if you, yeah, you can you can play There's an it, actual Peter's... playable uh, demo. Oh, that's awesome. I haven't yeah. seen it. That's the thing. What I love about the Internet is that these things are coming from nowhere. And it's, it's awesome. Yeah. And, and it's really cool. And that's sort of what the. What uh, a lot of people online, the preservationists are trying to do is finding these. Uh, yeah, I want to say thank. I wanted to say thank you to all those guys that are putting the work and effort into doing this, because I mean that is awesome. That's great for history, but I mean it's just great. I, I love it, and so mm-hmm. I want to say thank you to those guys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you guys, you guys did so much work, and and you, uh, there's so many stories. You know, it's like your story needs to be told. Uh, it, and, and there's so much, we're probably, we're just, you know, really scratching the surface here, but uh, it's just crazy. Like this whole company, I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at like how uh, that I, when you go online and you research scavenger, you, you get kind of the same narrative, you know, but what they don't get is like all of the, everything under the surface. And, you know, a lot of the stuff you told us with like the rock bands and everything like that, that that's really good insight. I'm really happy to have, you know, have this opportunity. Next up on my list is Into the Shadows, which I think is ironic because it's like the most flashy, the most promising title, the one that was mentioned the most in magazines and stuff like as an up and coming thing. And then, of course, it never saw release uh, And it, it, you know, so talk about that a little bit. Maybe you can tell us something we don't know about it. Yeah. So Into the Shadows, the title came from the technology, right? Because it was like the first game with light maps. And it, you know, again, it was awesome. Um, you know, I think all of us was excited. Um, and the team, you know, basically started in Sweden. So that was Triton. So that was Magnus, Jens, Frederick, 
Miko, um, all those guys. And, you know, they, you know, wanted to make this fantasy game, right? Um, and uh, so they came to L.A. and they started working on it. And, and they, they were biting a big thing. because So Magnus, brilliant programmer, um, super perfectionist, right? So it's one of those things, and you can see it, right? I mean, you just look at his stuff, right? It's it's that solid. So yeah, so we were supporting them, right? So we got them the, mm -hmm. the motion capture system to Sweden, and then they went to LA, and then they worked on the game and stuff like that, and everyone was super impressed. And that's where what goes back to the E3 of, um, I think, in 95, where Romero, uh, you know, uh, the guys from id were looking at our monitors because they were like holy shit what is this you know because i'm not even sure if they had lighting at that time i don't think they had light maps at that time i think magnus was the one that did that first so so they were like okay okay you know we gotta step up our game which i mean their, their games are like notorious right i mean yeah, Carmack, Carmack is, is just, you know, on that level of just crazy perfectionist to the point where he just holds off games from release. To that they're level. the same. I mean, they're the same guy, right? They're these programmers that are geniuses, right, that can push the hardware, you know, and make these awesome games. And Magnus, the same thing, David, Carson, you know, the programmers that we had was was like – you know, just top in the world. Um, and uh, and I love that. I mean, I've had that same thing with artists, right? You know, the, the best thing is to have a positive competition, you know? So so Into the Shadows kind of shook the world in terms of visually what you can do on a PC as a game with characters and, and stuff like that. But um, the plan was to have it on Saturn, right? <sighs> Did it ever even touch Saturn hardware? No, I think no. it was all PC. It was like a DOS demo, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was all PC. And I think that, you know, they were working very hard on it. Um, and it just took longer. It took longer to make. Help me lay this to rest. Uh, it, it, there doesn't seem a consensus online what it actually was. Like some people say it was like a, supposed to be an RPG. Some people say it was just a fighting game, basically. A really pretty looking fighting game. What exactly was it? Was it a dungeon exploring game? It was, I would say, you know, again, uh, they probably remember it better, but I think it was basically a fighting game, dungeon fantasy game. It was not to be a heavy, like a more minor storytelling. Like a hack you know. and slash where you would actually venture yeah, in, I think so, into yeah, the dungeon. Yeah. Okay. So not yeah. like two people in a room fighting each other. Not like a, not like a two player fighter. No, I remember like we wanted to have the zombies, you know, we have not orcs, right? We had orcs. Right. Uh, you know, so, you know, I remember like, so I started writing a story before it became that, right? So I, that was the hunt down and that had a whole story behind it. Um, but since the guys really wanted the fantasy, I kind of let them, you know, not let them, but they went kind of their own way in terms of this fantasy world they really loved. Um, and, you know, it's cool. But I don't think that, you know, that was just so much work for them to do, you know, as a small team, you know, so they needed probably more another year to finish it, you know, and it just yeah. never, it never happened, unfortunately. Exactly. Yeah, I definitely. If it did get released, it definitely probably would have gone on Dreamcast levels because that game 
was so visually impressive, it would have to be on the Dreamcast to be able to get that full effect if you guys were to put that right. out. Yeah, I mean, there's no doubt that we could have ported it, right? But the main thing is to make the first game on one platform and then finish that and then convert it. Mm. We actually do have a, an EXE, like an, uh, you could run it in DOSBox with the old uh, ITA Into the Shadows demo that you guys showed off at, uh, I don't know, it was the E3 96, I guess. Anyone playing it should go back and play those games at that time to understand the visual <laughs> difference. <laughs> right. You know, when I look at it now, I'm like, oh man, that, you know, it's like you got like a you know a square head, but. Oh, but yeah, absolutely. With the lighting, well, I know what you're talking about with the textures and the lighting. It just that kind of stuff wasn't happening, you know. There was nothing like that at all. This was the first thing that actually had, you know, ray traced you know, lighting in there. Was, you know, so. you guys did it before uh, Cyberpunk did. So <laughs> I'm actually a big enthusiast with all those retro games. Like I have a computer. I have two. I have two computers. One on the left, left of me is my main rig, but one to the right that's specifically for those older titles. So I just really. I, I really cool. am enthralled with that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah. No, it's like in every every sort of stage and the technology is interesting, you know, because you're sort of seeing what happened. Exactly. So I definitely like keeping connections to the past and that nature because it helps me, helps me realize and appreciate how far we've come and where we've gone from there. Yeah, totally. Oh, my, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's totally amazing. I was curious about the uh, Terminus. This was a team team fetus game uh, that was supposed to release a PC, PlayStation, Saturn, and it was an action adventure shooting game using the NURBS of voxel like system. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that title. Yeah, so that was Sex. So uh, I think we had problems with the Nitro Rex, um, you know, getting published, and it was sort of like you know we had the levels, the game was there. You know, so Saks moved on and, you know, I was busy with, you know, and, you know, doing other things, you know, Liverpool, London, but stuff like that. So Saks, I uh, got some artists with Saks, Darren, a super talented artist, uh, Damien, also very talented artist. So they started working on their idea of Terminus and, you know, they, what they liked, right? And to give you an idea, you know, um, we were in LA and, you know, these guys, all of the guys, sirens, they all went to night, you know, clubs. I mean, they went night, you know, into, you know, the LA night scene, right? So they would program and stuff like that. And then they would go to the clubs and, you know, their whole schedule. I remember like, you know, they would wake up in the four in the, during the day, you know, 4 PM. And then they would work all night into the morning. Um, but yeah, so Terminus had that club feel. Right. So they wanted to do this game with, uh, you know, you know, kind of sexy adult. What kind of what kind of feel did you say? Like a goth feel? What did you say? Yeah, goth feel like adult adult themed. I mean, if you look at Terminus, there's a video in there from from our from our booth. So you'll see uh, some some uh, some some video from the game. Uh, But it was adult themed. You know, the girl was really, you know, uh, sexy and stuff like that. Uh, which then later turned into, because that was sort of like 
as I was working on this game, uh, then that's when Scavenger came into trouble and, you know, um, Sax, you know, I, I, you know, I talked to Perry, Sax talked to Perry, or Michael talked to Perry, and uh, basically they went to Perry and Shiny and they, you know, turned it into, the, they brought the engine and they made it into a Messiah. But it, the engine was really interesting because Michael had this idea of tessellation, which is sort of like, basically, um, you know, at that time, you could almost have no polygons on the screen. So depending on how fast your machine was, he was sort of eliminating it. So he was adding more polygons to it. Um, so because of that, you know, well, hold, okay. So if you had a good machine, I'm skipping ahead uh, to a question that I had at the end, but I, I just want to, okay. So you, the information that I had regarding terminus was that it was team fetus. But then, and you, but then the game, yes. beca- the game became what would end up being Messiah, which was like a big triple A title uh, released on yes. uh, PC. Now, I also have a uh, during my research, I found a reference for a team called Team Messiah. Was there a Team Messiah, or is it just the the game? Uh, and it was it was listed as Jen Schmidt, Darren Herbert, uh, uh, basically Jens, Darren, yeah. and Michael. Were they Team Fetus or were they Team Messiah? Uh, so I, I'm gonna get confused here too because I uh, there was you know we had Denmark we had uh, Liverpool so I don't think there was a Team Messiah I think people are confusing it with the game that that they ended up putting out right yeah I think no, they're confusing that but I know I could be wrong but okay. Jens Jens was not part of uh, uh, the Terminus he was part of Into the Shadows okay. Huh? Yeah. So see, that's how much misinformation there is online. No, I mean, it's no, just hard to it's hard for me to remember some of the details, yeah. right? So it's it's just you know, um, but yeah, that became uh, Messiah, the game. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and next uh, we have Tarantula, which I I have as a Team Mescal, Team Mescal. That's and this is actually the last one, the last of the games that I actually have a, a team cited for. So Team Mescal, Tarantula, they did. Uh, I guess they had a booth. Uh, there there is actually some footage in the video that I'm showing you right now of the E396, and uh, there was another game released for the PlayStation. There was another game called Spider, which uh, I guess you could say is similar enough but actually it wasn't nearly as uh, ambitious because it was just kind of like a side scroller of a spider but tarantula looks to be a game that was like fully 3d uh, third person you're following around this tarantula the the closest thing that i could imagine was like deadly creatures on the wii uh we we had a game come out on the wii with like you you either take on a scorpion or a tarantula and i i don't know that there was any relation but uh tell us a little bit about that if, if you know anything yeah, yeah. So, so Tarantula was uh, the guys in Denmark. So, um, so as we were, you know, looking for talent, uh, not everyone wanted to come to America. Um, so, we open we opened an office in Denmark first, uh, and then later on we would move that office to London because there was much more talent in England than Scandinavia. I mean, there's a lot of talent in Scandinavia, but at the time. You know, England was the place where all the guys with experience was, you know, so we were like later we turned it. But Tarantula was made in Denmark first. So they started in Denmark 
Um, and actually, I have a, I have a, one of the sketches that I did uh, in the, the here in the folder somewhere, um, which is sort of basically a direction, right? I would give the guys a direction, sort of like this is sort of like the idea, and then run with it, right? Um, so what we did was what was funny was um, we had the guys again. This is the thing we want to have fun making games, right? So we had the guys actually get a uh, tarantula. So the guys got a tarantula from I don't know Brazil or something like that um, to inspire them to understand. You know, uh, I remember like it, you know it was scared of plastic uh, bags. <laughs> you know, I think it probably had a traumatic past in terms of what's being shipped. Um, but yeah, that was the game, you know, and again, we wanted to uh, make a, a game with a spider that you could be the spider and you could, you know, uh, you know, navigate the world and, and go into this world of this thing. I, I don't think that it was totally finished at that time, on, you know, when things went bad. But yeah, that yeah. was the idea. But the, but the um, that was it's like a uh, platform thing. That was uh, PC, PSX and Saturn. I, I, I'm I'm guessing that it probably only made it. It was, to it the, was PC, yeah. It, it was all developing on the PC. It developed on the PC, and it probably never made it over to the the 32-bit hardware. Yeah. Uh, okay. Same same with Terminus, right? I mean, same with Into the Shadows. Terminus. So a lot of these games were developed on PC and just didn't get ported over. Yes. Um, it, was that the same with Amok? Because I noticed Amok did get a PC release, and so did Scorcher. Well, so Amok was. Yeah, I mean, I think it was developed on the PC and then it was ported over. Okay, all right. And, and the thing is with the mock, and uh, so the mock was sort of, was, so the teams were close. They were both in LA. So they were hanging out with each other. So they had the machines, they had the 32X there, they had the Saturn there. So it was much easier for them to port it over uh, than the guys I gotcha. in Next, we have is Mud Kicker by a, an unknown team. Would you happen to know who who worked on who did a uh, Mud Kicker? Yeah, so that was another team uh, from Denmark that we then had come to uh, to LA, uh, and we found some artists. Uh, one artist, Thin, that I worked with at Virgin Games, joined the, the team for a while. Um, and Do you that was remember the name or the brand? I don't remember. What was the band name? (laughs) No, I don't remember the team name. So some teams were uh, stronger than others, right? Because sometimes it's like, you know, the rock band idea works for some and less for others, Mm. right? When when you're already friends and stuff like that, those were the stronger teams because they were already friends and stuff like that, where some of the... so, So... that's where the challenge with Scavenger was to organically, we we're trying to do this thing, right? But some of it was organic and some of it was not, right? So some of the times we would bring people together. And so I think those teams were not as solid. I mean, I, the, some of them, I don't even remember their team names, you know? Right. And I mean, I guess like 
they, they they would show off the games at a convention, you know, or maybe E3 or the, you know, and and the farthest they would end up is like in the French games press because the French they really like to report on obscure stuff. Uh, you know, I I just find that most of the stuff that I dig up is like from the French uh, games media. You know, well, that's interesting. Okay, yeah. well then they're good they're good detectives then. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess so. You know? <laughs> But yeah, they would they would just report on anything and everything in, in their gaming magazines, and uh, and that's where a lot of this information comes from, you know. Oh, that's awesome! That's awesome! Yeah, because I mean, it's hard for to me to remember some of the things. You had Mud Kicker, right? Which was like this off road sand sand buggy racer. I want to say the cars almost look like uh, Volkswagen Bugs, you know, the kind of sand sand buggy deal. Um, but at the same time, I've got this name that keeps coming up. It's Four by Four Frenzy. It's the uh, same. It is. Is it the same it's, thing? It's, 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 yeah, it was like the name was kind of like going back and forth. What were we going to name the game? Because that's listed as a monster truck racing game uh, mentioned in Scavenger's Moby Games profile. But then, OK, so maybe it started out as 4x4 Frenzy and then became Mud Kicker because it seemed closer to completion as Mud Kicker. And yeah, there were, screen, so. there yeah, were screenshots, think... you know, where I can't find any screenshots of 4x4 Frenzy, but... Uh, no, I think that we liked the Mud Kicker better. I think that's the last name we had. Already. But Mud Kicker was a part of that GT contract. Yes, yes. Okay, all right. All righty, uh, the next game is Angel by another unknown team. Uh, it's a platform action adventure featuring angelic girl exploring a gothic tower. Was would this be? Is it, this kind of seems similar to uh, similar to the 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 um, uh, terminus game? Would it be any any relation to that? Or so I think that that was Sean and Jacob working on it. I could be wrong. I'm trying to remember because they were also working on Spearhead. So I think that at that time it was just after a muck. And so they were working on ideas. So I think these are basically what you're watching here is sort of like a demo for an idea. It's it's not a game that's nowhere near completion right. at all. You know, in so, that E3 though, in that '96 E3 demo that uh, that it, it like does those quick cuts to like each yes. thing. You know, it's very '90s. Yeah. Uh, you got the MTV <laughs> vibe going on there, but it actually does list the title for Terminus. You know, proper title for Terminus, but it also lists a title for Angel, which I think yeah, is I gotcha. why people have that distinction that they're two different games. But you're saying it probably was like the beginning of something, like an idea that just never got fully fleshed out. Exactly. Yes. It just it has like some it has some assets that that video you provided is great actually because the only thing that exists online is a is a little scan of a magazine clipping right. and it's really bad really bad yes. quality so what you just gave us is actually going to be uh, reference grade material <laughs> <for the internet. laughs> okay so Angel again you don't know the team can you guess venture a guess of the team or was it there was I no think team? I think it was Soren and Jacob but I could be wrong. I'm, I'm trying to remember, but I okay. think that they were so, so this is the thing, you know, um, guys will work on something. They're like, you know, let's try this. Let's cause it, there was a lot of play involved, right? You know, it's a little bit like the demos. It's like, let's try this. Oh, this is cool. Or, or you know, a, a programmer would have an idea of something that's a game mechanic and then they would go with it. And the artist was sort of like, Oh, what can I make around this game idea? Right. So it reminds me a lot of the homebrew scene that we're experiencing today in, in Saturn homebrew. It's like 
for better or worse, you know, because people will, they'll come up with an idea for a game and they'll see it through to like a, a raw rough demo, but then they switch gears, you know, or something else interests them. And it just like, it kind of ends up sitting there, you know, it, it, you know, a lot of these demos, uh, a good case in point is, uh, uh, XL two. He's a, he's an, pretty much like the cornerstone developer for the Saturn right now. He's doing really crazy stuff that like lobotomy used to do. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah. Oh, uh, you know, sure. I'll send you a link. Um, he has a, he has a first person shooter, uh, with eight player death match. Uh, he's got some lighting effects and everything like that. He's doing all the same kind of stuff that lobotomy did. Definitely. Uh, there's a, there's an influence there. That's obvious. Um, but the thing is, he did a before that he did a Sonic Extreme demo that was just basically kind of cutting his teeth on the hardware, you know. Uh-huh. And I interviewed him about it, and he said it, it's probably just going to be what it is, you know. It's never going to get any farther than that, as impressive as it was, you know, because he's like, it literally was just a a stepping stone, you know. Yeah. Uh, and I think that that happens a lot. Uh, so it's just funny that these guys they remind me so much of like the homebrew developers that we see today. Uh, so the next team is going to be Aqua, which is a, another unknown team. It's a action adventure underwater exploration of sunken Mayan city. So yeah, so that team were another team in Denmark that was working and you know doing the Aqua idea. So again, that was more like an adventure Aqua thing. I remember them having a, a challenge game-wise, uh, trying to come up with missions and stuff like that in the, in the world. And also trying to make an open world that was, you know, tough to do at that time. So, but yeah, so that was in Denmark. Later that was a popular Denmark. genre in the mid '90s. The whole, you know, scuba diving thing. I think it was a right. hidden treasures. There was some kind of game on the PlayStation that did pretty well. Uh, and then there were like several like derivatives, you know, in that in that yes. same vein. But yeah. So I, I and and what I the only information I have is that 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 and Angel were actually planned exclusively for the Saturn from what I, from what I gather from news press, but I mean, I, that could be totally wrong. Yeah. Well, this, the, in that video, there is something from Aqua. So you can see that there they is. got some, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and it looks like it could be running on a Saturn. I mean, it, the graphics are, you know, primitive, primitive enough that it looks like it be, could be running on a Saturn. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think we definitely could port it to the Saturn again. So each guy, each team would sort of have, their own programmer and he was doing their own, his own thing. So for the, for every team had their own stuff pretty much. Okay. So I really, okay. So you got to help us fill in the blanks. Cause next up I've got like several games where I have literally nothing to go on other than a name. And like it was mentioned in an article. Uh, so pyro, does that strike a chord? So pyro was being a, you know, firefighter type of game. I was trying to find some some of the designs and we had here, you know, or I have here, um, but I I don't, I don't remember too much about it. I don't think that it was more than just basically ideas at that time. But I, I in the in the folder I gave you some where you can actually see some designs. You have tarantula. Um, yeah, cool. I was trying one. to yeah, I was trying to find all of them. I can't find them. But, uh, you know, if, if you five years from now are going through and throwing stuff out and you happen to find it, you have my email. (laughs) Okay. Got it. Okay. I'll send it your way. 
All right. Um, next game is as Gemini by another unknown team, and it's nothing. It's just a name at this same. point. Yeah. So I think uh, Gemini was the same idea, right? So again, you can see with the, the you can sort of see the brands, right? You're trying to go after a certain um, genre, right? So Gemini mm. was going into space. So you know, and there's been some great games since then that went into space. But that was the idea: go into space, be an astronaut. First person, uh, third person, um, action. I don't remember. I don't okay. remember. I think probably if third person. I, no, first person. I, I can't remember. You can't remember. Okay. All right. I, I won't. Think we, I won't. We were always trying to do a third person uh, because we like to show the characters. Right. You know? Yeah, that is true. That is true. Even with your racing games or with your. With Into the Shadows, or yeah, all of them do kind of are are kind of third person. Yeah, I don't I don't think you guys did do a, a first person game. I don't. Uh, Scorcher can go into first person. Oh right, yeah, this is true. This is true. Yeah. Yeah, but other than that, yeah, it was all about storytelling, so that's why we wanted to do that. Exactly. Okay, and then we have Sniper. Um, I, I think I saw the name Sniper mentioned in that video you sent over. Uh. Does that name ring a bell? Yes, oh, no. I remember the list that you sent. And okay. some of the things are, you know. You, you know, it was Spearhead. It was Spearhead that was mentioned prominently in that video that you sent. Uh, and there was some footage there. Spearhead was like the Marble Madness type of, I don't know, it was like a, you rolled up into a ball. Uh, yeah, and I think that was that was sort of similar to the Angel game. And I think it was uh, Son and Jacob, um, you know, putting some ideas together. So, so Soren, what's Soren's last name? Hannibal. Okay, so Soren and then Jacob. Anderson. Uh, Anderson. Okay, so those two guys, they were like the idea guys. <laughs> they were just like, okay, we have all these some, other. Yeah, they were one of the teams that were like, you know, very, uh, you know, and Mock was, they were doing things, they were doing things fast. Like Soren was super fast. I and know. he was also really good with game dynamics. Maybe that's why these games don't have that kind of information online because yeah, just I think never, so. I think so because they're throwing they're ideas at the wall to see what's yes, stuck. yes, and I think I think that's what made Soren makes Soren such a great game guy, right? Because he comes up with an idea and he plays with it, right? So mm -hmm. I think that this is them playing in the sandbox uh, with ideas for games. You know, Mar basically Spearhead was. The whole idea of Marble Madness, which we all loved, you know, uh, and making a game into it. And then I think Jacob brought in some storytelling to it. Um, so, so yeah, so I think those are sort of like a, a mashup of games and then try to see which one did they feel strongest about. But it always had that really gritty kind of d dark, edgy yes. kind of kind of cut to it. You know, like all of your games yes. did have that almost cyberpunk or dystopian kind of uh, uh, edge to it, you know. Yeah, so even that yeah. even that one, you were like you were like some kind of futuristic commando with a sphere suit and you'd morph into a ball a la nice. Metroid or something like that to do nice. these like puzzles or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you all can right. actually you can kind of see a muck. If you look at a muck. And Spearhead, you'll see the similarities. Yes, definitely. And the color palette and everything like that. Yes. You, you guys definitely leaned into those like earth tones and right. that kind of dark, grimy, uh, which was it's cool. It was a look. It was an aesthetic that kind of characterizes all of your games. Yeah, yeah. We had we had some teams that are a little lighter, 
Yeah, uh, Aqua obviously. Aqua is, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Pat, take the next one because this is going to be one of those exceptions, I think. The Spanish blood, right? Spanish blood. Yeah, yeah Spanish so blood. I don't, yeah, so I don't think that we got a team going on that. Well, you had screen. So this is this is one of the games that I actually was able to dig up several screenshots of. You had. Oh, the I want to see that. Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I will show it to you. Yeah, but there are, um, and this is this is available on Unseen sixty four, Unseen sixty four dot com. Spanish blood was like a, I don't know. You had a Spanish galleon, you know, like the entire ship was rendered. It looks like it's running on the Saturn. It's pretty janky. Like the po- the polygons are pretty. Uh, it's jumping all over. <laughs> well, just it's low resolution. You know, at low resolution. The textures are a little uh, crisp, <laughs> and. Uh, and it looks like it easily could be running on either Saturn hardware or just Windows at a really low resolution, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so maybe this is where my memory is failing me. So we had some guys in Liverpool as well. And they guys, they, they, they came from the game development side. So they came from Psygnosis and they were working on things and I'm, I'm just trying to remember. Um, oh, so they, this is that right. Might be them. You did have so Scavenger did have an office that opened up in in the UK for a short period of time and then closed down. Like, yeah. So yeah, we did have offices in, in, in England. England, there was tons of talent, and uh, especially from not from the demo scene, but from the game scene. Uh, and so, as we're doing this, it's like a snowball. Right. Imagine a snowball, right? right? The snowball is getting bigger and bigger, right? And so mm-hmm. um, we opened, so we had um, basically Peter went to England, helped open up. Peter was, Peter Nelson was running Denmark and managing Denmark. Um, and um, uh, so, so he was, eventually we decided that, you know, England would be a better place. So we opened up first office in Liverpool uh, and then in London. And I think that was probably open for about a year or something like that. Yeah, but Spanish blood was, uh, I basically made a one page thing lining out Spanish blood of being a pirate and stuff like that. And then again, what we do is we, you know, give it to the guys and they run with it. So, um, but those guys were in, in, in England, so I went to England three times or something like that. So I didn't, ha- I had somewhat limited, uh, you know, time with them. Um, but yeah. those guys were all really good guys too, really talented guys. Last game is Vertigo. Vertigo. Now, the only thing I have listed for this is it's listed or cited in a class action suit against GT. Now, that confused me because you guys only had four games that I knew of in the GT. Uh, and we're, I guess we need to wrap and talk about GT a little bit. Um, sure. But, but basically, it's my understanding that uh, when things went south with GT and they withheld payment, 
and you guys said, well, wait a second, you know, maybe we didn't deliver all four games, but they didn't pay us for the games that we did deliver, you know, and so you guys were kind of held up until they ended up losing a class action lawsuit with some other uh, companies. And it was that class action lawsuit that seemed to tip the scales in your guys' favor because once that once they came down from the class action lawsuit, then it was like all these other um, uh, all these other companies were basically awarded uh, their case, you know, because they say, okay, they uh, <laughs> they obviously were doing some shady stuff, you know. Uh, but yeah. essentially, it was lit- Vertigo was a, was a title listed in that class action lawsuit. Yeah, so I think that we listed all the games that we were working on and starting on uh, because basically in terms of a lawsuit, what we lost was not only the games, we, we lost the future of Scavenger, right? We lost right. Uh, the ability to continue with all the teams we had going. Um, so, you know, that's why we listed all those. Vertigo, I don't remember in details, I think is one of those ideas too. Uh, at sort of like spearhead and stuff like that. So the guys were running with it. I don't know. I don't remember how far along it was. It was probably in the beginning of making a game. Right. Um, you know, but again, we had two teams in Liverpool, a team in London. Uh, you know, we had, you know, so we had, a, you know, quite a few teams. I mean, we had, I'm trying to remember, it was like 70 or 80 people at, at that time when we were at most lots of uh, lots of ambition <laughs> yeah and basically we had so much cash flow running through every month uh, right. and that's the thing you learn about business is it's all about cash flow and if you don't have cash flow you're running you know so we were running we knew we knew what we were doing was difficult we knew that you know trying to do all these games and saving money for the next team for the next team and then running right was not easy and we had problems along the way, um, but we were trying our best, right? And all the guys that we had were solid, talented people. I mean, you can just see what happened afterwards. Every one of those guys have gone into making huge games. Um, so, so, um, but yeah, so what happened with GT was basically that they were owing us a payment after the gold master. And so we were calling them saying, okay, well, you know, you got the gold master, you got a moth, you got Scorcher. We're working on the other two games. Uh, when are you sending that? That is due. And they would ignore us and ignore us and ignore us. And we would call them and months went by. And as months went by, our bank, uh, you know, balance went down, right? Because we're running all these teams and at that time, you know, Daniel had, you know, he has an uncle, John Small, who's like a music video director and stuff like that. Um, and uh, so he sent us money to continue hmm. to, so like a bridge loan to make, you know, to, to until we got paid from GT. And I think it was, was it from August, October, November? So you have all these months and it's like boom, 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 costs coming in, you know giving to the teams, blah, blah, blah. And then I remember the discussion basically we had with GT. Daniel was on the phone and he's like, where, this is November, you guys are way, way, way late. And 
And basically, the guy, I forget his name, but you know, Joe Carey is the main guy that was running the whole thing, but it was someone else. And he said, F you, we're not paying. Go ahead and sue us. You're welcome to sue us. We're not afraid. You can't do anything. And that's it. Boom. End of discussion. And they literally said swearing words on the phone to us and said, you know, that's it. And so from that that's moment it. on, you know, we were like, you know, what are we going to do? Because exactly. we had the bridge loan, but that was only to cover until we got paid from GT. And GT was smart because what they do, and I think that that probably happens to other guys, right, other studios. But what you do is if you're a, a crook, you push people out until they can no longer have the ability to survive, right? Because if you, if, if, if you have someone that can fight back, then, then they can fight back. And they make it but, impossible for you to litigate against them too, because you just don't have anything left. Exactly. So they basically so, they basically claimed you were in breach of contract because you didn't deliver on the final two games. But of course, um, the your argument, which was the winning argument, was that you know they can't just do that. They 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 still received delivery, took delivery of two games that shipped, and they made and profit. It was in on. The con- yeah, it was in the contract to uh, you know get paid. once you, once a game is paid, it was not. It was not connected. It was right. Once this game is connected, then this, the payment comes due, right? And so what happened was then was we were in survival mode and we had no money left. And so what we did was I mean, we had money left, but not much money left. So what we did was I remember making the calls and it was very difficult calls uh, to Liverpool, to Dan in Liverpool, who was managing Liverpool, to Peter in, in London. And I said, I'm sorry, but we cannot continue and we have to let, guy, let go of your guys. And um, so what we did was we paid everyone another month of salary. We told them, keep your computers, your games are yours. So you can continue with the games if you want to continue with the games. Um, but, you know, we are not able to continue with, uh, with uh, those offices. Um, yeah, and it's and it's really. I mean, as as sad as it is, it's really cool that you did that and gave them an opportunity to survive and shop around. And I think some games like the like the uh, like uh, like Terminus that became uh, Messiah that helped them out a lot. And I think uh, I think it really goes to show the mentality between you and GT. Well, GT were all about the money. You were about business, but you were about you know pushing people, pushing the the people. You know. It, yeah, it just no, we wanted everyone to be successful. We were the same people, right? I'm an artist. I make games, right? It's like we wanted these guys to make awesome games. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the fact that we couldn't support them any longer meant that we hoped that they could find another home. And mm-hmm. some, like you're saying, like Messiah, found another home, right? Like Michael called Perry, I called Perry, and then we talked, and it's like, you guys go, you know? And I hope that, you know, take all the codes, you own it all. It's all yours now. Um, uh, but it was it was tough. And then what we had to do was we took our core team, which was Sirens, and we went to New York. And we tried to build it up again. But by yeah. then, our reputation was gone. It's sort of like, you know, what we were doing was we were sort of like this guy that was like getting bigger and bigger and bigger, right? And then we, we were also win. showing off in terms of yeah. like, hey, we're, these guys that do great stuff. 
And then I think a lot of people sort of, sort of felt like, oh, you know, uh, these guys, they just were faking it all along, you know? Um, you could make a true. movie. You guys could make a movie on your story, I swear, because it's uh, it's such a tragedy, really. It's like a there are so many highs and lows. And I, that's the thing is, I, uh, for me, one of the reasons why I really wanted to get you in these interviews because I want other people to realize, instead of thinking of Scavenger and just being like, oh, yeah, is, what, what games did they do? Oh, yeah, Scorcher and Amok. Okay. You know, like th- to understand that it could have gone incredibly well for you guys. It could, it could, you know, there were circumstances, you know, decisions made, you know, but the concept, the, the band concept, like you said, the label, uh, the booth, the, the fact that you guys, the fact that you guys, you know, always aimed higher than, you know, what, what you even thought you were capable of. You were always trying to push yourselves. A lot of the ideas that you had were concrete ideas had you not run into the cash flow problems and not been able to make payroll you probably would have uh i mean just looking at this list of unreleased games says it all right here it's like what a tragedy it is that uh, only two games off this list made it so we released four games you know oh, I mean, sub, you know we, oh, right, we had right. sega and, and warner brothers so we had red zone and subtraining also right, right but 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 yeah no it's it's uh um I know that it, you know, it really broke us. I mean, you know, uh, and there was a lot of difficulties at that time also because everyone's sort of like, man, you know, uh, and. So if you could go back and change one thing. As, as temptation, uh, like we were tempted to take, give uh, GT all the four games. Mm-hmm. And I, at the time it made sense because it's hard to find a publisher. Um, but we should have probably only done two, right? right. GT or or one. Actually, mm-hmm. maybe we should have only done one, right? Uh, and then another one with you know someone else. You know, um, I think that would have made that we could have survived. You know, mm-hmm. um, um, yeah. And it was it was really not easy for us because in New York we were already starting to kind of like because it was tough, right? It's like all these things happened and we all, you know, young and uh, yeah, it was, it was not, it's just, you know, do you know whatever happened to Daniel? Yeah. So Daniel, you know, again, he, he went to, it really crushed Daniel. Uh, and he went to Toronto. Um, you know, he's working on a business idea. Uh, you know, right now I went to see him in Toronto three years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I miss the guy, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, uh, it's like sort of like, uh, I don't know how it gives you this feeling like you're like been to war or something like that, you know, you feel like your buddies, you know, and then you, but yeah, it's just, um, unfortunately, you know, I couldn't start the thing at the time with him at that time. I still would love to work with him again. Um, but yeah, I mean, and he went through hell during the lawsuit, by the way. I just want to say, we couldn't find any lawyers. GT put on a top lawyer, like top, you know, like 500 an hour lawyer, full time with our case. And we're just overwhelming our lawyers. And with the first lawyer, I just will tell the audience this because in case, you know, you're looking for a lawyer or something, watch out for the lawyers that are just trying to get basically a down payment. Because the first lawyer we got was basically, you know, 
paid them $25,000 and this was like the last pennies we had, right? And I was working at DreamWorks then. I was sending money to Daniel and Daniel was fighting this lawsuit and working with a lawyer. And then the lawyer, I don't know, but he was doing nothing, nothing. He was, he was telling us things that he should never tell anyone. Like, oh, tell them everything. Tell GT all what happened. Like, you know, a lawyer should be protecting their client. He wasn't. And so what ended up happening was basically that um, we had one month to either decide to continue with this lawyer or to find a new lawyer. But we had only 30 days. So, and we decided to no longer that lawyer, new lawyer. We had 30 days to find a new lawyer. And Daniel saw everywhere. And by the grace of God, he found one lawyer in a company that was able to basically, with very little money, help us along. But Daniel did all the hard work. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he Daniel's smart. And, and you know, so, but yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate, you know. Um, yeah. The happy ending is that I, I, guess, I, mean, I guess the silver lining is that they they did end up having to pay you guys and uh, yeah uh, it's a yeah. small consolation considering the company had to close close its doors but uh, at least you I, know. And I just want to say we never went bankrupt mm-hmm. you know so it's not like we paid our you know all was paid and we mm-hmm. just closed the company right uh, and but yeah but we were you know we were talking with Sierra online and stuff like that you know it's just. The only good thing is, I mean, again, talent, you can't kill talent. And the talent went elsewhere right? and, you know, did really well, right? I mean, you have Sirings. Uh, we were work- in New York, we were working on two games, Private Eye and Rex Dominus. And Private Eye, I think, sort of inspired basically Hitman. So that became Hitman. So, you know, the guys went back to Copenhagen work with Nordisk film. I think they have contacts with Michael Bell and stuff. And, and so that Hitler, Hitman became huge. Yeah, definitely. And then, uh, and you went on to do film. Yes. Yeah. So I went on to DreamWorks. So I was working at DreamWorks. Uh, and after that, then I uh, quit DreamWorks to make a feature and, you know, I'm an artist, so I do all kinds of things. So, so it's all good. <laughs> And you're a busy guy, and I really want to thank you again for your time. I mean, you spent like two and a half hours with us, yeah, and I, I just, I really, I really appreciate that. Um, but uh, I really just want to thank you again, Christian, just for, uh, yeah, being open to meet with us and talk with us about uh, about Scavenger. Absolutely. We have a friend, uh, Nick, who uh, does some really good hour-long mini documentaries on YouTube about the Saturn's, uh, you know, about the Saturn's releases and he goes in chronological order. Uh, so I know, and he digs deep when it comes to research. So I know that a lot of this will be useful to him when he gets to the the scavenger games for sure. For sure. Until next time for those listening, you know, that this has been Christian Lorson, co-founder of scavenger, uh, scavenger Inc. Right. Yeah. Scavenger. Yeah. Yes.
we will probably try it. You know, you mentioned that uh, we should follow up with some of the developers. Uh, so if you have any contact, you know, if you have any contacts for that that you want to put me in touch with, I would sure. definitely love to reach out to individual developers, you know, because we can get in more of the nitty gritty stuff. But I feel, yeah, like you, I feel like you were able to give us more of like the overarching story. Well, thanks again, Christian. Okay. Thank well, you. Thanks, guys. A massive thank you to Christian for agreeing to do this interview and preserve an untold story in 5th gen game development. This podcast is part of the Shiro Media Group. Your Shiros are Peter Malik, Ben Wallace, Patrick Trainer, Dave Lee, and myself, Pandemonium. You can find more episodes, in-depth articles, and Saturn news of the day on our website, segasaturnshiro.com. Watch our Shiro Show live streams on YouTube every Friday, typically hosted by Pat and Dave. Our efforts are made possible by Patreon supporters, Emerald Nova, CNUN, Ian Keg, Super Dimension Century Orgus, Mamdo Madar, Humanoid 70, Barry Finlayson, Jesse Hurley, Rab Mack, Faux Macho, Derek Pascarella, Man of Stone 17, Tectonic Improv, Tom McComb, Shadow Mask, Private Eye, Nikita Sokolov, Young Money SWE, Anthony Rondazzo, Retrospectors, Craig Jolly, and Pink Jellybean along with all our other supporters. Thank you for listening, and remember, you must play Sega Saturn. We're probably, you know, we'll definitely edit probably a lot of my waffling down, but... It's going to be like an exclusive...